Welcome back to Digital Gonzo. This is the James Bond 007 Specials Part 3, After the Cold War. In this episode, we'll be discussing the four Pierce Brosnan films, the two that have emerged for the current rebooted Bond, played by Daniel Craig, the unofficial spoof version of Casino Royale from 1967, and Bond in video games, with my two guests, Mr. James Batchelor. Hello. And Mr. Gary Blower. Hello. Of Gameburst. Goldeneye, the song by uh, Bono and the Edge, or, uh, and Tina Turner, fantastic. Amazing. Channeling Shirley Bassey and doing better than Bassey, as far as I'm concerned. Brilliant song. Reflections on the water, more than darkness in the depths. See him surface and never a shadow. On the wind, I feel his breath. Golden eye, I found his weakness. So anyway, when we left you last, it was 1989, Berlin Wall was coming down very soon, and uh, Bond was left somewhere behind. Cold War was over, no place for the British secret agent. But then, six years later, after everyone thought this film series was dead, and there were several years when people thought Timothy Dalton was actually coming back, and even Dalton thought he was coming back, uh, Brosnan stepped into his shoes, and we got Goldeneye, 1995. Now, I remember it well because I was 15 and I was finally of an age to actually start watching Bond films and really kind of getting them. And, um, yeah, this was my favourite Bond film for a long, 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 long time. See, I never got to see it in the cinema. This was shortly after... Um, you were just my, out of play school at that point, <laughs> <weren't you? laughs> I was um, I was in primary school, actually, yeah. I was, um, oh. yeah, 95, I'd have been nine. 
but my dad had just weaned me off the um, the, the James Bond Junior, and had got me onto the old Connery Bonds. <laughs> Three years after it, it was off the air. Yeah, I know. Um, but no, that's my point. Like, it was quite recent that I'd been I'd been weaned off that that, um, that cartoon, put on um, the proper Bonds. And I don't know why, but I just, I wasn't interested in the new Bond, because I was, I prefer, I'd never seen a new Bond, I just liked the old ones, so I I missed Had you seen the Dalton ones? Pardon? Had you seen the Dalton ones? No, by that stage, I think I'd only seen the Conneries and possibly one or two of the Moors. Maybe one or two of the Moors. I think I'd only been on a Connery diet at that point, so I wasn't interested. I don't know why, I don't know why, because I wish I'd gone to see that in the cinema now. I think at that age, I found I'd, I'd watched a lot of the uh, uh, Bond films, but I found them somewhat stuffy, I, I, a little bit more appealing about the uh, uh, the Dalton ones. But um, I, uh, the the, the kick assery of uh, Goldeneye really appealed to me at, at fifteen. Yeah, it would at Zan. Uh, yeah, I saw it in the cinema. Yeah, I thought oh, no, I would have been had a twenty-two, <laughs> something like that, yeah. twenty-three. So yeah, I was a uh, got the whole gamut of ages here. Yeah, I think it was the I think I. Yeah, it was a year after I left university, so... Mm. Yes, it was... Because uh, I've seen all of them in the cinema from... I think Octopussy was the first mm. one I saw in the cinema. Oh, Lord. Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you what, when you, when you sit there, particularly when there's been a gap, and you know mm. the last one was bad, and you sit there and you wonder what you're going to get, you think, eh, <laughs> is it going to be another Diamonds Are Forever? I suppose so, yeah, because um, you know, back then it was it was an unproven situation. It, it, yeah. that we hadn't, you know, it, it could be, go back to being as bad as more. And some might say, eventually, it did. So uh, I think that one or two things define why Goldeneye was, was re- really kinetic and interesting. There's a way that Pierce Brosnan flings himself on the ground at least three times in the film with his uh, shortened, uh, custom-made Soviet AK-47 type uh, gun and just shoots several guys at once with this really determined look on his face that you're like, wow, this he really means it. He's actually killing fools at this point. And... Um, there's something slightly video gamey about it now, but back in the day, obviously, it was you know two years before Goldeneye happened. The the, the game that is, and it, it was a proper kind of. It was where he became a proper kind of action hero as we know them today, mm. rather than the previous one. The previous ones, the, the the majority of Bond's time was spent schmoozing with girls and in casinos, and there was every now and then there was a car chase, mm. and you know, and interacting with the villains. Now it was like every ten minutes there was a fight or a gunfight or a car chase or a plane crash or whatever, mm. and it was much more. It, it was a brilliant film because like it, it was the sort of thing you could only do after a a massive gap. Like and I think they, they wrote it brilliantly in that they've written it. You know, or, you know, the Cold War ended. You couldn't have done this say. Say this came out, like, I don't know, a year or two years after License to Kill came out. Mm. It wouldn't have had the impact. The fact that it, it feels like Bond has been away for so long, because he has, made the, like, made the, the whole post-Cold War storyline really work. And the whole, you know, like, introducing him into a new kind of era. It only works as, as a first film for someone, and after a massive gap. And also, Pierce seems to be really athletic and really quite handsome in this one. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's quite a catchy-looking guy, and he does a lot of running around the place, especially by the end. He's got that sort of kineticism to him. I think that's the best way of putting it. He, he's got that same sort of urgency as, in fact, Craig does. And to, to go back to your, what's it like, the look of determination on his face? Like, the, the, for me, the best place where you see the look of determination is the tank chase. 
like all the way through that tank chase, you, you yeah. can see his complete. His eyes are always focused on his quarry and who he's chasing. Mm. Like when they're smashing through the buildings, and it goes, it cuts to inside the tank, and you just see that slit of light that's on his face, mm. and he's still absolutely focused on that car, not even blinking. He's going to get that car, and it's it's really cool to see like someone taking the role really seriously. I was going to say I'm going to be a bit more critical actually of Goldeneye than you guys have been. Perfect. <laughs> um, I. To me, I mean, it's, it's 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 a good Bond. I don't think it's one of the best at all. And it felt to me very much a, a continuation of um, Dalton's Bond. It was mm. its its theme and tone and pacing is very very similar to The Living Daylights. Um, and I think structurally, Goldeneye has lots and lots of problems. There's lots of things in it which irritate me. And I think I don't personally don't think the plot is particularly good. But it it strikes me as being as starting out as one film and then being developed into something completely different. Now, I've, you know, in doing research for, for the show here, I've had mm-hmm. a bit of a read-up, and evidently it was originally written as a Dalton film, and then when he wasn't available, it then ah. went over to Piers Brosnan. And also, it was originally written to have Anthony Hopkins as the uh, adversary, uh, and then oh, it was wow. rewritten to have Sean Bean. And that's why a lot of the timeline stuff in it doesn't make any sense. The fact that, you know, Trevelyan is supposed to be a child of the Second World War, yeah. but he'd be in his 60s. But yeah, of course, that, I, that I've heard <coughs> is one of the biggest criticisms against this film, and yeah. I can't see that, yeah. yeah. And, and, but of course, you know, if it, had it been Sir Anthony Hopkins, it would have been perfect. So hmm. I think it was really set up as this kind of uh, mentor and, you know, Bond being the, the kind of student relationship and then it got changed when they obviously changed the actors and to me the film just feels odd you know when i watch it I, I, it just doesn't sit right with me the way that trevelyan is portrayed and this this kind of relationship with him and him and trevelyan i think is really weak and, and and that's probably the weakest part of the film i think that that relationship was actually ended up being mirrored in the original mission impossible with uh, john voigt's character ending up you know the, the mentor who betrays uh, the, yes. the, the young upstart so uh, if you if you want an example of what that would have felt like Mission Impossible for me though the actual swap around from switching at Sir Anthony Hopkins who would have done one of his usual you know he would have found it he's he's, still been great to watch if you see him if you see him in um, in Mission Impossible 2 he's he's practically rushing his lines in Mission Impossible 2 because you can tell he's just he's just doing this for a quick paycheck what Um, I was going to say was that the the swap around for actually having uh, Sean Bean is that you get a really great physical Bond villain who genuinely seems like he could be Bond's equal so when they actually have that bust up at the end it's just like Red Grant in the, on the train they are pounding the shit out of each other it's very personal and, and you actually feel like you know when they're smacking each other around the place that it's like either one of them could die at this point it they, they want to kill each other it set the template as well because I think in all the subsequent Bond films apart from uh, Jonathan Price the, yeah. the villain has been younger no you news know? like bad yeah. news um, so yeah, yeah I, I, you know, you get the impression that once the you know Golden Eye is successful, they can kind of just copy the template. I mean, and, I'm, and I'm talking now. You've got uh, villains who, you, you know, Craig really shouldn't be actually getting into punch ups with. He never got into a fist fight with Le Chief and no. shouldn't have got into a fist fight with Dominic Green. No, that's yeah, that true. was that was unconvincing because like Dominic just, Green like didn't look like he could be in a fist fight with anyone. Yeah, no, he's, I think he's supposed to be weedy. I'm <laughs> just going back to to Golden again. The one thing that makes Golden Eye special, I think, is the fact 
fact is the fact they got a really good, strong female villain in on a top. I know yeah. she's just a Fantastic. character and funny, but all the scenes between and her and Bond the ball. are brilliant. The, the, yep. the, the fight scene in the Turkish bars is fantastic. And oh, that, they, they really hit the nail on the head, because they tried that several times before. You know, there was Camille in an earlier one, and um, in uh, yeah. the yeah, well, they Spy Who Loved Me and stuff. They've been yeah. trying to kind of recreate the kind of the Fiona Volp from yeah. um, Thunderball, and this is the one time they've actually yes. really got it right, to the extent yeah. where well, that, she well, became her own thing. She was cracking now. I, I, that's one of the reasons I like Thunderbolt so much. But um, yeah, on the top, she's just so good. She was she's a, she was a better villain for me anyway than Sean Bean was. Although Sean Bean, like you said at the end, is, is very good. Uh, my my uh, three year old daughter ca- happened to catch that scene where Xenia crushes that poor guy with her legs, and she went, "Ooh, poor man." <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least he died with a smile on his face. But um, yeah, uh, Alan Cumming, yay or nay? Mm. Um, for comedy. Yeah, I'm okay with it. Comic relief. He was okay. Oh, it's obviously it's the mid '90s, so once again, woefully inept grasp from Hollywood's part on what the internet is capable of. Yes. It's like hackers. They all have like caricature faces, don't they? And they talk using that weird debug mode. But yeah, and also uh, the uh, last Bond film not to be scored by um, your favourite James. Yes. Yeah, so Eric Serra and his weird techno-poppy... There are elements of the the Eric Serra score that I really like. The Gold My Sweet at the beginning is good. Absolutely, Gold My Sweet at the beginning. It's it's got a real kind of mood to it. um, What's it, the kind of the weird electro drums that he uses, the sting, the... I can't even do that noise because it's not humanly possible to make that noise. I mean, I I like it because it reminds me of Nikita, which I think he also scored. Mm. Um, You listen to that sort of sound and it sounds almost out of date and sounds... It, it's almost like if you could sum almost up almost out the, of date yes out of date yeah no no I mean like if you, if you could sum up the kind of the post Cold War Russia like you know a cold place where some people are clinging to the old ways that's what the score sounds like and evokes mm. the only trouble is like it's great for atmosphere but then when it comes to actually action sequences he really falls well, short he also screwed up the, the the theme and also the uh, you know the uh, gun barrel music which yep. uh, I quite like the gun barrel I do quite like I love the gun barrel music <laughs> yeah, because there's a, there's, a, there's a rhythm to the gun barrel that isn't in any of the other gun barrels or even any other renditions of the theme and it's just it's really kind of I like it's, it it's, shall yeah. we hear that now go for it You can just you can just bounce to it. Like, I'm not saying I go around bouncing to the. It's bottom. like forging a signature, though. That's the that's that's the feeling you get. With yeah. It, it no, doesn't. Whereas the David Arnold ones feel like it's a, a modernisation and an enrichment of what was originally well, there. It feels, it feels like he's always been doing it. Yeah. Whereas when you, just, when you listen to how one, he plays the theme, it, it feels like I'm not going to do this shit. I'm going to do it my own way. And yeah. It just it just grates. You know, it grates with me anyway. But I thought that who was it that said uh, that the more ones were the more interesting films in terms of music because they had music was of the time and rather than just going for. Uh, no, that was me. I, I, I was saying like yeah. I liked the the like the live and let die and the live and let die spy who loved me and for only scores. I liked those because they were of their time and likewise I like this because it, it it sounds a bit nineties. It sounds yeah. a bit... Yeah. 
Yes. Got to mention, again, I don't think I've really said enough how awesome that fight is on the cradle at the end with Alec and, uh, and Bond. The, Incredible. The, the, Incredible the fight. punch up there, I think, I, I, I did actually say it, but yeah. the, the genuine feeling of them being like, right, I am going to kill you now, which it doesn't really happen in Bond all that much. You don't really get that sense of, right, you are going to die. When you watch it in a post-Born kind of era, it feels like a really kind of gritty born punch-up and it was what 10 years beforehand gotta say martin campbell's batting a very good average at this point i really like goldeneye love casino royale both his films see for me goldeneye it was me finally being able to claim bond and saying right now this is a bond for us for my generation and thus i managed to really kind of identify and 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 this this was the bond film for me because it was like right we've got one now that's ours and i could tell my kids about this in the meantime we've had one who's even more us so uh i kind of claimed this brosnan one and then he got a bit old and crusty by way of segue i claimed the next one for similar reasons The song by Sheryl Crow wasn't um, Surrender the one by KD Lang yeah. supposed to be the original one, and then they changed yeah. it. Because uh, that one actually, if you listen to it, it's far more like Thunderball. It's far more like the classic Bond. Mm. It's got the kind of the, the bombast that the Bond songs have. I still quite like. I like the um, the Tomorrow Dies and the World Not Enough. The two the two sound very very similar, but mm. I like those as kind of nineties Bond songs. They don't. They don't sound poppy. They, mm. They've got an element of pop about them, but they don't sound so poppy. Like, if you heard those songs away from the film, you think, oh, that's a Bond song. It sounds like a kind of 90s Bond song. And I believe the two of them were still written by David Arnold. I am in control 
Okay, right. So tomorrow never dies. Really quite like this opening. It's a bit uh, sort of techno related. It's a bit more. It's almost like born in terms of the sort of there's MI6 back home watching on computers and, and you know, communicating with their man in the field. I mean, I, I kind of like that. That made it a bit more up to date. Hmm. I, lo- I love it because it was one of those ones where, like the the pre-credit sequence, is almost like a little adventure in itself, um, mm. which is something they started with Goldfinger and like Goldfinger's one was like. It was a little bit weird. It was just, oh, look, I've gone to blow up something. Now I've had a fight, and there was no real context to it. This was like, it was like the climax of another film. Mm. And it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, like, this was the first Bond film I saw in the cinema. It was, you know, I'd watched a couple of them on TV, but this was the first bit. This is the moment where I actually, like, you know what, I'm really into this series. I'm going to follow this and make sure I watch all of them. And this was my Bond. This was the point where this is where I really entered the series. Interesting. And, um, I wonder what it was about this one that, that Goldeneye did not have. I, I, well, like I said, I hadn't seen Goldeneye. I didn't actually see Goldeneye until after I saw Tomorrow Never Dies. Ah, and you'd already claimed it at that point. And I'd already claimed like, it. So that's the thing. Tomorrow Never Dies has that moment of that's my first Bond film like that you see in the cinema. And uh, listen, seeing them in the cinema is a completely different experience to being introduced to them on TV. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's, it's where you're absolutely wrapped up in what is going on, and that's where you really forge a connection with that yeah. film. But I saw View to a Kill in the cinema, but a four or five-year-old boy can't claim Roger Moore. No. It's his Bond. He's like, no. oh, who's this crusty old turtle? <laughs> yes. Where's that nubile young Russian girl? Whereas, like, a, 12, a, a 12-year-old in Tomorrow Never Dies is only going to get hooked. Indeed. And, and particularly from that whole opening, and due in no small part to David Arnold, but we'll get onto that in a bit. Indeed. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be talking about David Arnold quite a lot. Zan, your thoughts on TND? Um, like a lot of people at the time, really, the, the, when it came out, um, I remember listening to um, the Mark Kermode film review on... Um, oh, I, think it was on I think that's one of the... I was the first year it was on Radio 5. I can't quite remember, but... Um, yeah. uh, they were basically saying, and I agree, that the, the thing with Tomorrow Never Dies is that it lacks a kind of real signature moment in it where you can kind of think back and go oh yeah that was that was tomorrow never dies you know that remote that control car so not really bike underneath the helicopter i think the, the bike and the helicopter is the only thing you can really recall from it as, as kind of standout moment it doesn't well, have like jumping a, off the building and tearing in his yeah, face it, but that's just i kind of done that with the remote control car as i know it's not a specific moment but as a sequence yeah. it's one of the best car chases going in the hell in the whole series yeah. I'm not so sure. I, I don't particularly like that that uh, that, that piece actually. Um, and uh, again with the villain, I mean, much as I love Jonathan Price, he he doesn't really do nasty very well. Right. He sort of comes across as a sort of tax inspector. Yeah. On that note, this is the first Bond film to be published after Austin Powers, and it was literally about two months afterwards. We've been talking about how we were going to talk about Austin Powers. We don't have time to go into it in detail. I'm going to do a Gonzo on it at some point. But in one fell swoop, Austin Powers managed to lampoon absolutely everything that had been ridiculous about the Bond series and several other series before, like in like Flint and The Man from Uncle um, and various other spy films and spy TV shows. So it left us in a world where every time they did something you really that was similar, that. you noticed it. It was like that episode of South Park where they lampooned Family Guy and said, you know, ever noticed that Family Guy, all the jokes are just four completely irrelevant things all jammed into one as if they're being picked by manatees in a tank with lottery balls. Funnily enough, and after watching watch that episode, I, I, yeah, I, I'm the same, after watching that episode of South Park, I now cannot watch Family Guy. 
Um, see, I can, but I'm very aware still of it. Yeah. It's like, wow, you and think I'm, that's bad? That's worse than the time I went breakdancing with Muhammad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so, you know, I, I see what I, I see what the criti- critics are saying, and and certainly it's noticeable. Like for me, Tomorrow Never Dies more so than any of the other Brosnan films felt more like a classic Bond film with mm. a ridiculous, a, a clearly insane villain. Yeah. And There's a, no news. And, like a, bad and a ridiculous, news. you know, we're gonna trigger a war or take over the world or something stupid like that plot. And it was, and it was, it felt more like. The Spy Who Loved Me, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, mm. that sort of film. And I liked that. I like It was a 90s take on the the most classic Bond formula going, and I thought it did it well. The saving grace for that film is The Doctor. Oh, I think his character oh, yes, is Dr. Kaufman. Yeah, he's so cool. It's just a hobby, yeah. And yeah. I, I, other problems I have with that film, I think Terry Hatch is grossly underused. You know, they made a big deal yeah. of, before the film came out about she was in it. She's, she's on the screen for about four minutes. She it's, is quite good, and then she's dead. Yeah. It's, it's a shame, because she, she's a great character. She kind of, I, I read this, in, I'm not going to claim this on my own, I read this in a book. Like, she kind of, she represents all the Bond girls that got left behind. Mm. Like, mm. You know, because all, all the ones that we always... We always see him, you know, in a boat or in a parachute or whatever with the girl at the end of the film, and come the next film, she's gone. Yeah. And she's the one that that, that, that represents all those ones that got left behind. And was there something of, I said? How about the words, I'll, I'll be, be right, right back. back? The way that whole scene is handled is absolutely fantastic, because you do, in the back of your head, start thinking of the times he said, oh, I'll be right back, or something's come up, or whatever. Um, it's cock. You know, England needs me, etc. And... And so yeah, and, and, and think of it. Sorry. Sorry. That's right. But she, she was brilliant for that, and they didn't really make everything they could have mm. with that. They could have done a little bit more with it. Although it does seem that he's genuinely rattled by her, because when he's drinking afterwards and he's undone his tie and he's fiddling with his gun, and you're like, wow, he, when she comes through the door, he's not entirely prepared for this. No. But they don't really make much of it because then she's dead. Mm. It's shame, like the, the, the two Bond girls of this film actually were very different. So like, like I said, like, you know, the, the Terry Hatcher is not your typical damsel in distress. She's the one that got left behind. Wei Lin is more akin to kind of the triple X um, yeah. so, you know, his complete match, but does not use her sexuality, doesn't even sleep with him. All right, they, okay, they're kissing by the very, very end. We're talking like the last 30 seconds. I they're still kissing. reckon she wouldn't, though. Yeah, exactly. You can if still tell she, she'd be like, she was holding out. She was holding out. It's like, oh, what a shame. Like, she'll subtly be you know, reaching for the distress flare. Oh, what a shame. They're going to find us now. You know, and, and they weren't the typical Bond girls, but they weren't really explored be, like, as much as they should have been. They were supposed to reintroduce her in Die Another Day as well. Little, oh, were they? Yeah, well little, in. Yeah, a little trivia fact for you. Yeah, you know, instead in, of Dylan Barry, that would that would have no, 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 improved. no, no. The when when he goes when he's in Hong Kong and he goes to the hotel, yeah, they they changed the character so they made it so it was the hotel owner or the hotel clerk. Oh, whereas he would yeah. a, actually would have been her that he met there, but they that had to rewrite it because she was busy. Yeah, I would. Have been, I mean, like, also, like the, the bringing back of memoirs of a geisha wasn't enough. Was great. So I like, I like the idea of ca- you know, characters that come across all of them. Um, I really like Waylon, though, I, again, like uh, Anthony Hopkins, is Michelle Yeoh being herself, and very, very good she yeah. is too. It. There's one bit that pisses me off, which is that when she's walking down the wall, she's wearing stupid pointy high heels, and yeah. it's like, no, no, of all the Bond girls, this one would wear flats. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very much so. She wouldn't care about looking cool in her cat suit. She'd look cool enough as it was. It's a breaking into places suit. It's not a, yeah, a you know. She'd, she'd be much more practical on that. Yeah. Um, 
Now, like I said, I just I love this film for the fact that it's so classic. It, it, it follows the kind of the classic formula. Mm. Um, the the action sequences I think are great, like the bike chase, the car chase. I know, but you know, Gary doesn't like. It. And like we said, that opening, that action-packed opening, mm. is amazing. As a first, if, it certainly is. You know, as your kind of intro to the series, like you know, who is Bond? Bang! This is Bond. Steam yeah. jet out from it, underneath terrorists, blowing up everything in the middle, flying through a um, flying, flying through a, an explosion, and then firing a man out of an ejector seat into another jet. That's Bond. You could imagine more doing that in his wildest dreams. No, exactly. No other. That, like, the only other Bond that could have pulled that off is uh, Dalton. Or There's a similar scene to that at the beginning of no. Octopussy. Yeah. Octop- oh yes, Octopussy. Oh, yeah, Octopussy. Yeah, yeah. But even then, that was at the arms. Horse's ass, though. I was going to say it came yeah. out of horse's ass. <laughs> a bit stupid. Yeah, but it's, it is an arms sphere. It's a similar, similar conceit, anyway. Yeah, yeah but if you if you compare that scene, that opening to this mm. one, it's incredible. Mm. And, and but that, an arms sphere in a field outside Pinewood Studios. I'm yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but all done with real stunts, not CGI. Absolutely. Yeah, so. just absolutely brilliant. And like just the, everything that's going on. So not only just the action, but the kind of the, the banter between M and the Admiral, and you know the, yeah, the, that's, the that's tension. Good. Yeah, that's it's Jeffrey, just all fantastic. Uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Palmer. Jeffrey Palmer. Oh yeah, he's he's, um, he's he's cracking actually. He's good. Yeah, it's not a bad film at all. But the, I think the, to me, it's the, largely forgettable. I think that's the word. I know. Maybe, maybe it's because maybe it's because of the personal connection for me. But I just I I love that film. Like the the Jeffrey Palmer like um, Judy Dance thing of the whole. You know what the hell is he doing? His job. Yeah. Just, I love that whole thing. And then, and, and like I say, David how Arnold. have we not mentioned the fact that Judy Dench was suddenly M? Judy Dench was suddenly M after oh, yeah. decades of M being a man. And everyone was like, "Oh, that's cool. We like it. No, that's good." And she's and brilliant. She, and it was she. She loves it because when you have it, whenever you see her like go and accept an award for a Bond film, like I think she accepted an award for Casino Royale or um, something, and she would joke like she, you know, she was at the BAFTA saying, "Oh, you know, the beauty of being head of MI6 is I can send Bond off to do all the dangerous missions, and I get to come to glamorous occasions like this." And you can tell she was expecting a laugh, but she didn't get one. I think everyone was 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 okay with it because of Stella Remington because she'd already been head of MI6 for of I don't know what it was four or five years before Goldeneye so it wasn't unusual I suppose but she's I mean they uh, I think they that was a stroke of genius really giving her the part and then they as as you know as we we go on they expanded her role greatly in the in the later films and yeah. and for and the films were much better for it I mean M in the very early films was you know a caricature that you saw for five minutes at the beginning and one minute at the end. Mm. If, if you saw him at all. discovers him in coitus. In coitus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so moving swiftly on from that one. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention German. Yep, dude who is like the most German man in the world. Oh, stamper. The, the Aryan. The yep. Aryan stamper. Like, he's clearly meant to be like, again, you know, again, going back to the whole classic Bond formula, he's clearly meant to be the new kind of Red Grant or Hans. I th- is Hans the, um, the henchman from You Only Live Twice? Yes, the one who gets eaten by Piranhas, Dave Prowse. Yeah, the guy's eaten by Piranhas. Yeah, Dave Prowse. He's clearly the new Darth Vader. Well, the new David Prowse. And, you know, he was a good enough character. Interesting, I think he's like, I think he's the first or one of the only henchmen to die after the villain. Usually the henchman goes first. Do you think he was recommended by that uh, henchman agent? I think he was. I think he was. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely Paul John German bloke for you. Yes, he's, he's very good. Oh, he's got such muscles. He wears nice tight t-shirts. Yeah. Don't, can, don't uh, let him near missiles. He gets his foot stuck. It takes ages to get him out. If you get him out at all, otherwise he's scraping off the walls. Moving swiftly on, the world is not enough. Yeah. 
Post-Austin Powers, obviously, they had to make something a lot more serious, and they got in Michael Apted, who is one of the serious, uh, <clears throat> dull, uh, serious directors around. And uh, so The World Is Not Enough obviously has a, a much more sort of um, realistic slant, apart from the puffball jacket. And yes, yeah, so at the very beginning, Bond gets injured. After, after an absolutely awesome speedboat chase down the Thames. I actually know someone who knows someone who was part of that speedboat chase. Wow. Part of the stunt team. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was describing it at the time in, in 99, saying, oh, it's really exciting, there's going to be water splashing everywhere and all that. I love that boat chase. Again, that's one of my favourite chases out of the entire series. Um, and again, because of the, you know, what, and eas- easily my favourite David Arnold cue over the top of it. But it's, yes. just, it's brilliant. Like that, that's, I think that's the longest pre-title sequence in the series. It's like 20 minutes, because you go from the bank in Bilbao, Spain, um, where he jumps out a friggin' window. Now... It's not the most elaborate of stunts. He's tied himself to a curtain, um, a curtain <coughs> rail. Oh, no, sorry, a curtain. Tied himself to a bloke. He tied himself to a bloke with a curtain rail and jumps off a balcony. Mm. But it's an incredibly exciting moment. Um, and lastly, thanks to David Arnold Scott. I'm subtly dropping this in. Do you notice? Um, it's David Arnold. But it's like it's like 20 minutes. The whole pre-title sequence, and just and that boat sequence is amazing. The, the, to go back to the other, he injures himself. I think this is like, isn't this like the first time he's properly injured himself beyond looking a bit bloody um, at the end of License to Kill. Injured himself to the point where they reference it again later. Yeah, it plays into he the plot. has his arm in a sling at the end of Octopussy, I think. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, but okay, I mean, I mean, like oh, during, no, during the film, he's 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 got his arm in a sling, and then it turns out he wasn't all that hurt because he yeah, he was he was faking yeah. it because yeah, just yeah. to get out of work. And but to get this some... is the one where it's the opposite. He actually is hmm. hurt. It, ref- it, it references him as a weakness and more vulnerable, and like the Bond who can be got at. My only argument, my only problem with that is, this film takes place over about two or three days, and by the end, he's absolutely fighting fit, and I don't know if shoulders repair themselves that quickly. Uh, well, oh, he does know uh, they, they play on it. Are you applying on, physics? No, not at all. <laughs> he does get whacked in the shoulder later on and Indeed. grimaces. I think, yeah, actually, he specifically, yeah, it doesn't. Reynard bash him in the shoulder on purpose. Just, yeah, no, but that, that's about halfway through. At the end, when they're on the, on the submarine, they've both got each other by the shoulders, mm. and he's absolutely fine. Yeah, but the audience has forgotten by then, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that is true. I know, it's, it's a little more dull, it's a little more sedate as a Bond film. It's got quite some quite good performances in it. Uh, Judy Dench does a bit more acting, she gets captured, so mm. there's, a, there's a bit more with her character. Sophie Marceau is good as Electra. She's, She's fantastic. I, I quite, I loved the twist that the Bond girl is the villain. Mm. That was a fantastic twist. You couldn't do that too many times. In fact, mm. I don't think they've ever done that since. And um, Bond doesn't cure her. Apart Bond from doesn't another day. Oh yes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, no, I did. I just I loved that twist. So that was, that was really well done, and like yeah, brilliantly performed by Sophie Marceau. And it's great to turn this kind of. Renard was the first Bond villain in a while, quite a while, in fact, that had one of those classic Bond villain deformities. 
Mm. When was the last time you had someone like we had the, the sociopathic Max Zorin? In, mm. but, and, and everything after him had been. Alex Chavillian like, had a deformed face. Well, he had scars. He had scars. I'm talking like a proper which Jaws, in fact, three nipples. Jaws, Jaws, Jaws is the last Bond villain mm-hmm. and or henchman that had a proper Bond-style deformity. I called and, Grace Jones pretty deformed. Yeah, but, yeah, but she, she's just been deformed by nature. Um, but like a, a, nature's a, cruelest mistake to have a a classic deformed Bond villain and and have essentially have him as the henchman by the end of the film mm. was brilliant was fantastic and somewhat sympathetic by the end as well yeah, definitely sympathetic by the end because you can see how he's been used and manipulated by a French woman mm. and the torture scene really actually quite good and Brosnan yeah. does some quite fantastic acting in there because he's like when he goes one last. And then he's like, oh, fuck it, I'm going to go for a funny, smutty line. Screw! But when he when he finishes delivering it, it's almost pathetic. Yeah. He's, like, he's like a biscuit away from having his neck snapped at this point. Mm. He's got nothing left. And it's, it's again, some quite good acting on Pierce's part. Again, um, another film where you see a lot of the kind of the Pierce-determined face, like particularly when, was it, when he's confronting Elektra, because mm. he thinks he's twigged that she's the villain. Mm. And... You, and she has an answer for everything, but he he does not. His face does not change. He looks really pissed off. Mm. And then he shoots her point blank in the face. Yes, this, which is cold as ice. Really cold, but brilliant. And required at that point, she was about to mm. kill everybody. I'm going to defend it a bit. I I, I personally it. think that the world is not enough is is the best Brosnan film. I know that not many other people agree with that, but yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's the the best acted. It's got the best. I, for me, it's got the best story. It's not over the top. It doesn't. Mm. It's set in a kind of the 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 plot, if you like, is realistic. It's not a kind of world domination or or even a revenge plot, really. Feels more like Furious only. It's very yeah again another film I really like. Yeah, I tend to yeah. like the Bond films with a little bit less action and a bit more thinking. I suppose mm. apart from Christmas Jones, of course. Ah, uh, um, I was going <laughs> to like, So I, I studied this one in um, media studies, like when I was at um, sixth form. We did, I don't know what, we did action films and we studied um, Bond. And the, Why and did you study this then? I don't know. I don't know. Just, no, no, no. Oh. This is just the one that the, um, the, the teacher had picked. I think it was like, I think Die Another Day was in the cinema, so this was the latest one. Yeah. And, um, and he, he goes, right, I want you to just look through this film and note what happens. And, he, and when you break it down, it's basically ten minutes action, five minutes something, 10 minutes action, 5 minutes something, some sex, 5 minutes something, action, 5 minutes something. And he's pointing out, look how they're putting in, like loads of, like every every 10 minutes is something exciting or something sexy to yeah. keep people entertained. And I'd never twigged until I, I until I saw that. So the, the trouble is like about this film, I absolutely love this film, don't get me wrong. And I, I agree with Gary that it's probably the best um, Brosnan. My, you know, I, I still prefer Tomorrow Without that's just my own personal but delusion. The problem... But with some of the other films of this period, and particularly the most recent one, which we'll talk about a lot later, mm. is that they didn't, they don't have that level of pacing in it. They, mm. they either, particularly, we talk about the last film, the, the Tomorrow Never Dies, that had like massive amount of action right at the beginning, and then yeah. not much happening, and then a huge set piece followed by another huge set piece, and then whereas in the world is not enough, it's not over the top when you get the action sequences, apart from no. you know, even the boat chase. And it's like 
there's much more sort of ebb and flow to it. It's much more rhythm to the film. So you don't, you don't constantly feel like, what's going on again? What's, you know, why is he having this fight? Why is these people shooting? Because you've had time to digest what's happened. And now he's moved on to some other part or some other part of the story. And I think that's, that's been a major flaw with Bond actually since, well, really since the, the Roger Moore days, you know, in, in a lot of the films just become a set of action set pieces strung together. And mm. more, more recently, they've just become far too much action. And not, you know, absolutely no narrative whatsoever. Mm. One has. Yes, with the exception of one in particular, yes. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that The World Is Not Enough was the time when I started to pull away from Bond. Like I said, I claimed Goldeneye for me, and then uh, Tomorrow Never Dies was, was excellent. I still liked it. And then World Is Not Enough, I was a bit, eh, it's, it's okay. I hope the next one's better, a bit more like, you know, mm. the first ones. And then by the time the next one came around... I just didn't care because I'd already seen the Bourne Identity, and uh, I think not, I don't think Supremacy wasn't out at this right. point. But, um, uh, I'd seen the Bourne Identity, I'd seen how it was supposed to be done, and the Die Another Day is bollocks. Yeah, looking back on it, I, I should have. You know, when I watched them, was not enough. I should have recognised that. You know what? This is as good as it's going to get with Brosnan, mm. and I should have recognised that this is kind of the peak. Um, not you. Know, I don't think it's his fault. I mean, I watched it. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I watched it a few days ago just to remind myself of the awfulness of it. And as I, how did you enjoy your sleep? Yes, I fell asleep at fifteen minutes to go. <laughs> um, That's the good fifteen minutes. The problem with the film is it's trying to be too clever with the audience. It's trying mm. to cram in as many references and nods and winks to previous films and to have identical scenes to previous films. Even the bloody ice palace is the is the undersea you know, uh, Atlantis yeah. or whatever it is from yeah. Spy Love. It's the same model, for Christ's sake. You know, they're, they're so obvious with some of it, but they're trying to cram in all these references and all these things they want to squeeze into is two hours. the same model? I didn't know that. Yeah, if you look at it, it's exactly the same shape. <laughs> oh, God. Um, they, and they just cram in all these things. Even David Arnold's score, he crams in uh, virtually every signature tune from the past 20 films at some point. Yeah. Even some of the ones that were lost in time, which are in the, the, the driving sequence. And so what you end up with is just a mess because none of a it. A montage of, of Bond moments. A, a montage it's like of sort cliches, of yeah. yeah, indeed. Okay. Um, hey, if anyone remember the crocodile costume? It's up on the wall. Ev- everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. I mean, the even to the point that he picks up the bird book. <laughs> You know, the bird yeah. which is where James Bond's name comes from, and it's on the cover of the book. And, um, you know, so, yeah, just throughout the entire film, it's okay. full of cliches. Having said that, the beginning, and I've said this to you guys before, is really good. Agree, the yeah. first, and that's what threw me, because when I first started watching it, I was like, wow, this, this actually is really good. I tell you, the, the point the, where it falls down yep. is... It's the sword after, fight. After, after, well, yeah, it's the sword fight. You know what? It Let's the sword fight. beginning before we get to the point where it falls down. Beginning, uh, Bond uh, gets into a scenario kind of similar to the world is not enough, sort of realistic, posing as one guy, then blow, some stuff blows up, he gets into a hovercraft chase, uh, kind of like something in Tomorrow Never Dies, ebbs along, you're like, oh, Bond as usual, and then he gets captured. And that's when it suddenly starts getting yeah. good. Because as annoying as that Madonna song is, it's actually somewhat fitting at this point. And if you actually watch it in the film, it it really has an impact. And it's woven into the way that the actual intro sequence is designed. Best He's title being sequence. Yeah. Best title sequence going. I'm gonna wake up, yes and no. I'm gonna kiss some part of. I'm gonna keep this secret. I'm gonna close my body. 
showing the passage of time as he is tortured and captured by Koreans is absolutely brilliant. It's Bond on his knees, it's Bond at his weakest, it's Bond at his, his, his smallest, and he's got no clever comebacks, he's got yeah. no gadgets, he's got no backup, he's got nothing left, he's just he's, being fucked up. He's, he's, res- he's, uh, he's, um, I don't want to say reserved, that's not like the, he's resolutely, he's determined to, like, he's accepted his fate. He's hmm. accepted when you, when you see him like tied to the chair and the guy's trying to interrogate him and you're like he's like you know what fuck it this is the rest of my life now I fucked up I'm you know or not I fucked up I got I got betrayed I'm stuck to this chair this is it until I get out if I get out what, later on when M when M's like you know like uh, you know you you we have to get you out of there's like I know the deal I know the deal caught caught and you're given up you're you know you're completely ignored and, and and he knows that and he accepts that and he's not angry about it because he accepts the risks and he knew it's almost like he knew this was going to happen one day and interestingly it harks back to Casino Royale yes. of which I read the book last week and uh, there's a passage where it, it, he talks about he's being tortured and Bond's uh, trying desperately to think about what to do and he, he harks back to thinking to talking to the people that he's talked to who have been tortured and how when you begin it's the absolute worst and then there's a peak to it where the pain actually sort of gives or gives over and it becomes twinned with pleasure because your body just can't take any more so it starts to dull yeah. to the pain and so Bond tries to get to that point while his bollocks are being smashed in by a carpet beater tries to get to that point where pain doesn't mean anything to him because there's no other recourse there's nowhere else for him to go hmm. and for, for them to start this film there it's fascinating and then they go fucking nowhere with it well, they retain the interest, you know, to the point, you know, the, 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 the scene in Hong Kong, which you talked about earlier, um, I, you know, I think they kind of call that the, you know, he's got this backup plan, a bit like the Bourne identity, I guess. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he remembers all old contacts and stuff. Yeah, that he yeah, can, yeah. His he favors, he favors, he his own, he yeah, on purpose, just, just to pull the, just... Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that, but yeah. Um, and it, yeah, he calls in old favours and he, you know, he ends up, winds up back in the Bahamas, which he always does. Um, and now, then, hang on, the, there's the some dispute about when, the point where it suddenly gets shit. Now, for me, the point where it gets shit is where Jinx turns up. The second mm. she jumps out of the sea. That was, so, that was the warning bell. That was the same, warning bell. That you were saying the exact moment. Like, yeah, the cheese. Then, what point do you think it is? Well, I think that bit's cheesy, but then I, I quite enjoy the scene in the hospital, and I think Jinx in in the sort of the the action sequence that they have there is pretty pretty cool. And you think actually she she could turn out to be really interesting, but they never mm. really go anywhere with it. Um, like the, 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 it goes wrong for me the moment they're back in London and he goes to he has a huge sword fight with yeah. uh, Rupert Graves. Even though that is actually a Bob Anderson choreographed sword fight, Bob. Anderson, he of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Mask of Zorro. Uh, sword fights just, like just don't feel right in a Bond film. Agreed. Yeah, they, it, just, it feels well, like you, you watch it and you think, oh, we've never had a, bond, a, a sword fight. And then you get to it and it's like, and that's why. Because there's nothing really Bondish you can do with a sword fight. There's nothing that you can do that signaturely, oh, yeah, only Bond would do that in a sword fight. And that's why they don't bother. Like, for me, the, um, the whole theme of, you know, like I say, you know, cashing in favours and so forth. Even bins like bits like when he's in the Bahamas, you're like, you know, can I borrow these? A pair of binoculars and a rusty old revolver. And it's like, yeah, all he's all he's got is what he can get his hands on, and mm. that's that that whole notion there, like just the idea of, of like just that that freeze frame there of Bond holding, yeah, Brosnan holding binoculars and a rusty revolver. That's what the film should have been using, like, you know, no gadgets, no mm. like literally just using the backstreet stuff that he can. Mm. 
to kind but of... But this was, this was only just after Bourne, so they didn't have time... No. ...to go, look, we need to rethink this. Yeah, no. They, they didn't have time to... At the same time, they could have figured to themselves, look, let's bring Bob back to basics, get him back to being a spy out on his own. Like, that would be really like, good. So, yeah, if, if the film had carried on that way with with just a rusty old gun and a mm, and his yeah, task exactly, I'd, yeah. I'd have been cool with that. You know, Bond trying a, to you know save the day with with MI6 hounding him to try and bring him in as well. Yeah, yeah. Allah, oh yeah, almost like um, was it like Quantum of Solace? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But as soon we needed. But as soon, yeah, I mean, from the, the sword fight onwards, it just plummets, catam- yeah. you know, catastrophically. Invisible car, the, surfing CGI bonds. Oh, dear, oh, No, dear. Surfing, surfing bonds at the beginning. So, oh, no, 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 sorry, no, the it's CGI bond. Oh, fucking hell, that's horrible. Yes. As, as low as it seems, I think, I honestly think the, the CGI point is the lowest point. As much as the sword fight is where it starts to fall off, mm. the CGI is the very lowest point that film reaches. And that was like early 20, 21st century CGI, where I think I've mentioned this before, it's all rubbery and horrible. Yeah, looking. just The light doesn't fall when they write. And then the, the, well, you know, you, we get introduced to the jet car, which he then escapes in with, the, yeah. with you know. Oh, he beat your time, because he's just so fucking great at everything. Yeah. Uh, he just, just, I was like, I'm Mr. Kill. Well, there's a name to die for. Was that really necessary? Uh-huh. Do we need, Mr. Kill serves no purpose in this film. And then, other than for that pun, we have to be reminded of the greatest scene in in all the all the bomb films with the the, you know, the, the, t- the gold table and the lasers. Yeah, and yeah. we get oh. it. We get it. What, what we get instead is this pathetic <laughs> fight scene with Jinx and these idiotic sort of you know. Uh, why would you have lasers that do that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can understand why a, a gold baron would have a laser to cut gold, but why would you have a rack with millions of lasers for no apparent reason? The lasers you meant. Why would you have a Power Ranger out? with electrocution gloves and things. Nothing <laughs> about graves makes fucking sense. The, the laser thing, the laser thing, you're meant to be really scared of them, and then it actually goes across Bond's arm and it just cuts up his jumper. It's like, ah, oh, it's not It so burns him slightly, yeah. It doesn't even, it doesn't even touch his skin. Like, his skin is just... Graze. It's like, oh, <laughs> I might also add that it is never, ever sold at any point that Graves is the same guy as the guy at the beginning, no, the Korean guy. No. You never feel for a second that they're the same. They don't have the same personality. You never, you never really spend any time with that guy. So the, the, the illusion is never sold. And at the same time, you don't care what Graves It makes wants no sense. Do. Why would he he's do got, that? He's pissed at his dad or something yeah. like that. <sighs> then he's got this stupid Death Star laser thing, and he's going to point it at Britain. It's, it's like a reference to Goldeneye. Diamonds are forever. And I love, no, I love that the whole the whole plot that we're meant to be really worried about the entire world and what's going on mm. is oh, the north of Korea is going to take over the south of Korea, which I know is topical, and I know, but in terms of global conflicts, as global conflicts go, isn't the it most affect, in, isn't the most compelling for an audience to get behind. It basically it brings to an end a civil war that's been raging for decades. Yeah, I mean, if 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 the North had you know had yeah you know, if the villain had won, I don't think I'd have been too bothered. Mm. But any, I mean, uh, Graves, it's one of the one of the worst Bond villains actually, yeah, if not the worst Bond villain. Yeah. So, <sighs> like, just in ter- I I I, I kind of see what they were trying to do. Like they were kind of trying to make. Almost make the villain like Bond, not in the same way they did with Trevelyan, but like what's it like when he's saying that? Oh, I modelled my new persona on you in the details, you know, the, the swagger, the quips, and so forth. They're like they're trying to put Bond against. A, How did you know that? Cup. You only met him for about. Well, exactly, for about yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's let's not even go. He into didn't that. even know he was Bond. Let's not even <laughs> go into. And that. if he's on file, just, how secret of an agent is he? 
the just the, the stupid like the stupidity of his whole his, his course was like look parachutes for the both of us whoops not anymore it's like that's not even vaguely menacing mm. besides which Bond has already that. leapt out and, and caught a guy with a parachute like fucking 20 years ago exactly exactly it's just painful I, it, I, it started so well Mm. Everything right up to the like, you know, I, I could even buy the DNA clinic. Right, okay, you're getting a bit sci-fi there, but providing you don't don't, don't go too far with it, that, like, I mean, the DNA clinic is basically a sci-fi version of a plastic surgeon. That's yeah. all we need to know is that people are hiding their identities, He's changing his DNA. I, I don't care anymore. It's bollocks. It's yeah. Moonraker. It's uh, yeah. it's, it's it's diamonds it's, are forever. It's, it's, no, it's it the is, future it's, kill. It's it is staying Moonraker. too it's, long. It's, it's Moonraker. Yeah. It starts off as a fantastic thriller film, a mystery. All oh, what's going on? Who stole that shuttle? What? You know, who's set up Bond? And then halfway through, think, ah, fuck it. Let's just throw all the bells and whistles at it. No. We haven't talked about Christmas Jones. She is fucking <laughs> awful. <laughs> is she the worst Bond girl ever, or is it that bint out? No, it's definitely Stacey Sutton. Stacey I'm Sutton not. Majorly, I'm not a massive <clears throat> fan of um, Halle Berry, the Jinx Jordan. No, she's because, rubbish. Too. Because she's shit. Because like they, they tried to do the whole Barbara Back thing again, the Triple X, but mm. they 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 made it really immature with the whole you know who sent you your mum. She's also useless. She yeah. has she's also useless. Yeah, tied up twice. Yep. Yeah, but so did Barbara Bach once. Indeed. <laughs> but at least she had a sword f- a fight with uh, Frost. <laughs> again, Lyra saw that, and then after she she, she kicks her in the stomach with. Uh, with a, a knife through a Bible or something like that. Yeah. And Lyra went, ooh, she got a tummy ache. <laughs> like, yeah, kind of. Yeah, sorry about that. She was okay, she it, was horrible. It, things like that, that was, you know, that was a fairly decent fight sequence, and, you know, like, the banter's a little bit, there's a little bit too much banter, particularly from Rosamund Pike. Mm. And then it was like, I can read your every move. Read this! Bang! Like, that's already a fairly terrible, bad, a very terrible way to end that film. But then to go, bitch! Afterwards, it's just like that wasn't necessary. Why did you do that? Halle Berry's delivery in that film was fucking awful. Really I terrible. I like the bit where they got in the helicopter and it fell out of the plane, and then they sort of get the helicopter flying again. That's yeah, that felt stupid. That, I think no, no, I like it. I, I kind of that may have made me. Li- I actually left the cinema thinking uh, that was all right. I didn't leave the cinema hammering my head against the pavement because when I finally saw it again on DVD, that's when I realised that that film was shite. It took seeing it on small screen to remind me <laughs> that that was a, a dismal end to Brosnan's career. I got to say because he started out so well, I, and they I, just sort of. I, it still uh, kills me that he didn't get another chance to kind of, not him, mm-hmm. but like they didn't get another chance to redeem that point to end yeah. on such. Because yeah, we said this in the last couple of weeks, couple of episodes. Was it like Diamonds Are Forever and View to yeah. the Kill were the point where. Connery and Moore were just past it. Brosnan, I don't think, was past it, but the the team that were making his films clearly had completely gone over the hill mm. and just and missed it completely. And I wish he'd had another chance to show, look, this is the sort of bond I can do. But you might require the bitter pill to actually come back with a live and let die, to actually come back with a golden eye, and to come yeah. back with Cena Royale. True. And, of course, to come back with a living daylight. So, James, David Arnold. David Arnold, I think, is 
one thing that we need to discuss because he's done absolute wonders for the series and for the series music. Um, like the, as as we all know, I'm a massive soundtrack fan. Um, but the, the Arnold ones are the ones where the music really comes alive. If you listen to the kind of the John Barry scores, and even the ones that yeah, that John Barry didn't do. Ultimately, there are really two settings. There are on and off. The music is either playing, and it's playing at its loudest and at its fullest, or there's no music at all. David Arnold just absolutely amazingly works out ways to kind of build up and come down out of every single sequence, whether it's a character interaction scene or if it's a, a, a full-blown chase sequence. Listen to the boat chase music on um, on Was Not Enough. The point where Bond is cut off by fire going across the Thames, and the music calms down and you know, with just mourn, almost mournful violins, and then builds up, and the percussion comes in, and in comes the Bond theme, and it really starts to build up, and you, you know something awesome is coming. And the older films don't seem to do that. The other the other great thing he does is he. He almost takes a kind of John Williams style approach to scoring in that everything has a theme. In the older films, certainly the John Barry ones, you have the Bond theme, the title theme, possibly a villain theme, and then maybe another piece of music, and then that's it. Certainly listen to um, View to a Kill soundtrack, and there's only really two or three cues that just get reused over and over again. The, his, his, John Barry's arrangement of the Bond theme was exactly the same from uh, Man with Gone Gun all the way through to View to a Kill. With the exception of Bond 77, or when external um, composers came in, it was played in exactly the same way. Arnold completely kind of breaks it down into the barest bones of the theme. So you will hear snippets of the theme, and even bits of the theme played in different kind of tunes, and different kind of you know different kind of keys and different kind of tempos. And you know, I, I like I like Alex was pointing out with the uh, the another way to die the. Uh, the, the piano bit, which is actually the da 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 da, played slightly differently. Arnold does that. Arnold does that brilliantly. He does the um, there's there's a part in the boat chase, for example, those um, da 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 da. That's actually da 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 da, but completely differently. But still feels like the Bond theme. He even throws in, you know, like I said, like he throws in different things for a different thing. So in, in all of Bond's, um, sorry, Arnold's scored Bond films, uh, Bond films, there will be the Bond th- theme in various different ways of it playing, a villain theme, even a theme for like the villain's main weapon, a love interest theme, and then at least two kind of songs, usually the title song and the end credit song, that weave their way into the score to give everything a kind of a melody. You listen to, like, White Knight, the um, the opening of Tomorrow Never Dies, and you hear the, the, the verse and the chorus, etc., of um, Surrender kind of played over the action, and it really makes it feel absolutely epic. I just... I, I mean, I, Gary, how do you feel about it? Are, are you into the music? Um, well, I've been a, a big David Arnold fan even before he did Bond. Um... I, I bought the single to uh, the BTB Bjork Play Dead from the film The Young Americans when I was a student. Yes. I, I've always been a massive uh, David Arnold fan. So, <clears throat> and um, obviously he did Shaken, um, not Stirred, Shaken and, and, and Stirred before he even got given the Bond gig. So, hmm. uh, yeah, I'm likewise. What I love is the way that, um, and what makes it feel so clear, it feels like he's been doing the, the score for the films for much longer than he has because he's got, like, he, he he uses the full-blown orchestra to make it sound like a proper classic film score, where they, you know, where it was just orchestra. There's no like kind of 
techno or DJing or yeah, electronica. But he weaves in, certainly in Worlds Not Enough, and almost too far in Die Another Day, he weaves in a little electronic, a, you know, electronica and a little percussion to give it a bit more of a modern th- feel. But the, but it never overpowers the orchestra. So the orchestra is still central to the music and it still feels properly classic. Since the Craig films, he's, he's gone one further. He's even, um, he's even started like making the, the music sound like the, the place he's at. So listen to Bond in Haiti which is this kind of really kind of, you know, uh, tribal drums, and it makes it sound much more exotic, while he's still technically just playing the same theme tune. I just, I absolutely love it, and I highly recommend anyone listens to his scores. Alex also wanted to know which person we'd most like to do a Bond theme. I just want to put a plug out there for Bjork, because she actually did record a, a Bond theme. She did, she with, did. You with and David Arnold. Yeah, she did, but it was never released. So, but you can get it free. So, if, if Alex wants to download it and stick it in, that will be it's cool. It's really, it is definitely really good. It's, it it kind of emphasises everything that's great about David Arnold. Mm-hmm. In terms of who I'd want to hear, I, Michael Bublé, he's got that kind of old school voice. I can imagine him doing a kind of a From Russia With Love style song. I'd be interested to see what he could come up with. Obviously with Arnold. Arnold has written the, uh, the title themes for most of them so yeah. far. For me, it's, uh, I kind of wish that this guy had actually sung a Bond song way back in the uh, 80s. For 1987, next time you listen to The Living Daylights, imagine Bowie singing it. Oh, yes. That would have been amazing. Set my hopes up <laughs> too high. Living's in the way we die. He would have been brilliant. He would have been absolutely brilliant. The quantum of the solace. Quantum of solace. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? I quite like the, um, the the Robbie Williams A Man For All Seasons, which was the title theme for Johnny English, which was a Bond piss take. That and that and his his Millennium track, which obviously riffed off um, You Only Live Twice. He would have been quite good. I'm intrigued to see what would have happened with um, Amy Winehouse, who was originally meant to do the song for Quantum of Solace. Mm. Well, probably not sober enough. But... Yeah. Oh, no, no. Casino Royale, 1967. And nine. We're fighting for our lives. Have no fear, Bond is here. He's gonna save the world at Casino Royale. Robert Van Dossanowski has written an article on the artistic merits of the film and says, like Casablanca, Casino Royale is a film of momentary vision, collaboration, adaptation, 
pastiche and accident. It is the anti-auteur work of all time, a film shaped by the very zeitgeist it took on. That's a fancy way of saying it's just not funny and nobody had a clue what they were doing. Comparing it to Casablanca may have been journalistic suicide or just a way of putting everybody else's back up. Now, I in no way want to upset or insult fans of the 1967 version of Casino Royale, but this is a point of reference that we simply cannot see eye to eye on. I've actually heard people claim that this is more like Bond than the 06 Casino Royale, a statement I find funnier than any single gag in that film. My ire and hatred for Casino Royale 67 and everybody involved in making it, especially both writers and all six directors, is only just matched by my admiration for the 2006 version. This was a film made with the agenda to send up the current official Bond series, something done subsequently and far better, notably in Austin Powers. This in itself is a perfectly understandable mission statement, and had, had it been nothing to do with Bond, its blend of incoherence, total lack of narrative, and feeble jokes that just aren't funny, would have had it relegated to the forgotten realms of 60s arcana. Unfortunately, there was something of a link to the license, and at least five characters from Casino Royale, the book, Bond, M, Lachif, Vesper, and Mathis, plus some cursory nod to the actual plot that make this far more messy and complicated. It took me four attempts to watch this film recently. The third time I couldn't even press play, only lie in the fetal position and weep. Watching it, you're aware that you're expected to laugh, but not when, because nothing is funny. Not the wordplay, not the slapstick, not the clumsy references to the first four Bond films, all of which were very good, and at the time didn't really merit a ribbing. Some people actually regard this festering turd as an actual film instead of the cash-in botch job printed on film that it actually is. This is the 60s equivalent of Meet the Spartans or Epic Movie, and exactly as funny as both of them. It was made with no real love or passion, written by people who couldn't write, and directed by people who couldn't direct, it would appear. Um, I think I just called out uh, John Houston and said he couldn't direct. It's telling that the genuinely funny Peter Sellers walked out and the lengths they go to close out his segments are some of the most nonsensical. The only thing that needs explaining is why Woody Allen didn't. The whole thing ends in a colossal farcical melee as the various half-finished threads come crashing in on themselves. If Fleming had been alive, he would doubtless have sued for the defamation of his various characters. However, if he'd been alive, they probably wouldn't have had the balls to make it in the first place. Gentlemen, your thoughts on Casino Royale 1967? My thoughts are very simple. I have never seen it, and I have no intention to ever watch it. No, yeah, it's awful. I've, I've seen it a couple of times, and it is truly dreadful. And mm. um, what I would like to... to I, I'm, I keep missing it every time they, they play it on Radio 4, but they, um, the BBC did a, uh, a Casino Royale play with actually... Uh, Rupert Graves playing James Bond. How long ago was this? Uh, they, they, it was first uh, broadcast in 2009. Oh, I see, so it's a recent one. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, after he'd made Die Another Day. Mm. Uh, so the actor who plays Rupert Graves, yeah, he plays 007 close James Bond. And it's, a, it's a Radio 4 um, afternoon play, I think it's about two hours long. And mm. I, I would love to be able to get it. You can't actually buy it, unfortunately. I've, I've looked everywhere to see if you can actually get it. But I would like to hear that, because that is a sensible uh, you know, alternative version of Casino Royale. I'll see if I can find it. I've actually, uh, speaking of alternative versions, I did actually watch Casino Wild Climax today. <laughs> it's uh, the version made in 1954 before everyone understood who James Bond was. It's the one with the American card sense Jimmy Bond. Yeah. They didn't know where it was going. If they'd known, they'd of course made it in English. It's more faithful than Casino Royale 67. They even go get to the, uh, the the sort of the gun cane thing, which they didn't even do in the 06 version. People sort of walk into a room, explain how Baccarat is played. The chief must have this before, otherwise he makes this much money. 
And it's it's very sort of staid like that. And there is actually the torture scene at the end. They don't, they don't pound his balls, but uh, he sticks him in a bathtub and does horrible things to his feet. doesn't end <laughs> the way it should, though. It kind of misses the point about Vesper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Le Chief, well, Bond, Bond shoots Le Chief himself with some clever trickery. And uh, then sort of goes, quite frankly, my dear, I love you. Let's, well, he's, he's American. Quite frankly, my dear, I love you. Let's get married. And then that's the end. That completely missing the fucking point of the whole story. But, you know, as far as TV versions go, not terrible. Better than the 67 version. At least it was coherent and it was straightforward. <clears throat> Anything else about the 67 one? I, I, uh, everyone always no. says, oh, I love the music. Really? No. There's, no, there's, there's nothing good about it at all. Nothing. It's best left forgotten. Your file shows no kills. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists. Which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. It doesn't bother you killing those people. Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. Heart or girl, melted your cold heart yet? James, get the girl out. You're not going to let me in there. You've got your armor back on. I have no armor left. You've stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. I'm yours. The only question remains. Will you yield? In time. Transition from 2002's Die Another Day to 2006's Casino Royale was significant for many reasons. It was the first true Bond reboot. The first time they did not ask us to believe that all of the previous adventures had happened to the same man. That this was a new, younger Bond, a fledgling 00 agent, and we were starting from scratch. The writers were actively striving to distance themselves from the camp that had cropped up at the close of Connery, swallowed up the Moore era, and now claimed Brosnan's efforts. All of the ridiculous aspects of the series were lampooned in the acerbic Austin Powers films. Ergo, the creators of Casino Royale had to make this new film Austin Powers proof, as it were. No easily escapable situations involving an overly elaborate and exotic death. 
No unnecessarily slow dipping mechanisms. No sharks with laser beams attached to their heads. No girls with smutty nicknames. No gloating, mincing, pinky-raising master villains with their base inside a hollowed-out volcano. But in doing this, they also distanced themselves from some mainstays of the series that were less ridiculous but still overdone, the absence of which leave Casino Royale feeling lean, serious and pacey. Gone are the gadgets, aside from phones and computers. Gone are money, penny and cue. Many Bond fans rebuke these decisions, lamenting the death of their beloved franchise, but there are two relevant counterpoints. The first is that if you go back to the original Casino Royale novel, as written by Ian Fleming in 53, it's a similarly lean and straightforward spy story without all of the above trappings, which were mainly brought in for the Moore era. You're actually fairly accurate in terms of events and character motivation. The other counterpoint is that the Bond series remains the cultural sponge it has always been. There have been consistencies and points of similarity among the 22 movies, but as we've discussed over the previous two and a half episodes, we've seen him start serious and sparing, become overblown and camp. It's gone exploitation, kung fu, space opera, back to serious, back again to silly, serious again, and in the wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall, take on the properties of 80s action movies to the point where Bond's character was incidental. The Brosnan era were always wry and ironic with Ferrez into seriousness before descending into science fantasy farce. But no matter what, they've given us what we wanted. They have analysed what people are watching and what they respond well to. In the case of Casino Royale, they obviously turned back to the source material novels, Connery's coldest performances, and the polar opposite of everything on display in Austin Powers. But to give it tone and form, they looked at the Bourne identity and its superior sequel, The Bourne Supremacy. These presented the world with an assassin who came off as convincing. It was a realistic world of technological surveillance and hitmen who did not sneer or monologue or waste energy in fancy flamboyant fighting or crazy weaponry. There was very little exotic about the films. Even the locales were merely a backdrop for a very serious story about trying to keep one step ahead of your pursuers. In other words, they did the real-life Bond better than Bond ever did. After these films have been made, it would have been incredibly difficult to make Casino Royale without drawing inspiration. As it is, there is enough brass in the score and that famous dinner jacket to remind you that this is, indeed, Britain's secret agent. But without those, the links between these two films and their 20 predecessors have become somewhat tenuous. Whether this is a good or a bad thing depends entirely on what you prize about the series, but it is important to remember that these films have gone on long enough now to make Bond immortal. Commercial distribution rights change hands all the time, and he has shown his adaptability and ability to still be relevant half a century after his first big-screen appearance. Bond will endure longer than any of us. Even if he disappeared for 30 years, James Bond would return and take on the properties of the entertainment industry of 2040. What separates Casino Royale 06 from a lot of the previous efforts is that it functions extremely well as a standalone film. With no prior knowledge of the Bond series, a newcomer will find a great degree of intrigue and excitement. It's excellently paced, well shot, well acted, with a tight, solid script, and despite being two hours, 20 minutes long, it flies by. At this point, I'm going to play you the entirety of the most exciting Bond theme of all. It's Chris Cornell with You Know My Name, which epitomised the new direction and got us right in the mood for Daniel Craig's deadly new 007. If you take life, do you know what you'll give? I'll die, you won't lie, what it is when the storm rises. Would you be seen with me By the merciless eyes I've deceived I've seen angels 
much as I am a massive proponent of the old classic Bonds, I do love the direction they took this with. I love, I, I really enjoyed the Casino Royale novel, so I love how true it was to the novel. With the exception of one thing, which I'll get onto in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, and it was, it was a fantastic new direction for Bond. It mm. was, it was, you know, I, I constantly compare the Craig Bonds to the Nolan Batmans. Mm. Yeah, you know, mm. this is Batman Begins. This is Bond Begins. You know, it's completely different to the previous Bonds, the Bonds that we've, we've known and loved and the Bond that I grew up with, but it's by no means an, any, you know, any less relevant, any less exciting and any less interesting 
a Bond. I, I'm intrigued now that they've got the uh, the kind of the origin story done with um, you know following a what's it like a, a Casino Royale and, and Quantum of Solace. Now they've finished with their origin story. I want to see them see where they can take this vision of Bond. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with with your sentiments, Alex, and and what you said, James. I, Casino Royale is a fantastic film and it's one of the best Bond films mm. uh, for me it and I've said this before and uh, you know you can kind of pull me up on it but it has so many parallels with On Her Majesty's Secret Service in terms of looking to reinvent the franchise looking to take Bond in a completely different direction injecting a lot of emotional weight to the the, the characters and the plot um, you know v- virtually everything about it is drawing on the same things they tried way back when and really the only mistake they made with that film was in casting of Bond itself whereas you know the, the difference between Lazenby and Daniel Craig is immense you know Daniel Craig puts you know he puts his, his own sort of unique flavour on the, on Bond you know he's, he's this sort of arrogant cocksure doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything personality who's then who's you know attitude is then softened by when he meets her and they tried to do the same thing with Laser Meat but he just didn't have the, either the acting skill or the charisma to pull it off mm. um, and it, it is a fact I mean I just finished watching it again for about the tenth time just before we started recording because I was watching it on the train on my iPad and um, uh, it is yeah it's superb there are little tiny things in it which I kind of think well, I'm not quite sure about that but taken as a whole it's definitely one of the best of the series uh, so yeah, Zan, what are the what are the issues with Casino Royale? Two, two, Not that I'm saying what's wrong with that. Yeah, but there's kind of two things don't quite sit right with me. One is the the whole conceit around blowing up the plane. Now, okay, in, yeah. in actual fact, blowing up that plane would have no impact whatsoever on the <laughs> company. When people build planes, they don't build one, and they don't put all their money into one prototype. It just doesn't happen. There's it's, it's obviously an, an allegory for the A350 or whatever it is or 380 isn't it um, you know they build like seven prototypes which they then test and just the whole concept of that is just a bit dumb but it was necess- it was a necessary plot device and it kind of had a nod and a wink to uh, 9-11 because it was in America and it was you know it was well she even, doesn't even wink she just says after 9-11 yes so yeah yeah, yeah. Well, well, they, yeah there's a bit of exposition after it just, <laughs> just to make sure that you understand that my other issue with it is the violence now I'm, you know I don't mind you know, I love the Bourne films. I don't mind a bit of realistic violence. But one of the things that both the Craig films have is, I would say, a slightly unsettling need to show you death. So not just Bond's taking somebody out, but watching them slowly die in his hands. Yeah. Um, they do it four times. They do it twice in Casino Royale. They do it twice in Quantum of Solace. You know, people mm. bleeding to death, people being strangled to death, and, and, and really sort of elongating it out. Now, I know they're doing it to sort of emphasise the fact this is a new Bond, this is, you know, this is how nasty and horrible it would be, which, you know, totally take that on board. Mm. But it, they kind of push it a bit too far for me in that they kind of sort of ram it down your throat. Okay. Um, some of them are key. Which ones do, do you specifically stick out? The, the two, well, one is in Quantum of Solace, so I'll talk about that later. The one in Casino Royale is where he, where he strangles the uh, Ugandan terrorist at the bottom of the stairs. That is key. I'll go into that in a second. Next. 
So that's it, really. Those are the two things. The, the, it's just the, I don't, the plane as a plot device doesn't work for me. And, okay. and no, 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 device. sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not just being dismissive at all. What are the other moments where someone bleeds out? I know it's the other one's the guy who he assumes the identity of at the beginning of Quantum of Solace. The guy at the, at the start that he drowns yeah. in the toilet. He drowns in the toilet, yeah, which I think that's, that's actually well handled. Yeah, that's, yes. that's well handled. No, the yeah. other one is, yeah, in Quantum of Solace where he basically stabs him in the leg, uh, okay. Demon on the Taylor so style, and then, let, told then waits for him to die. Uh, I think there's, there's four. There's another one in Quantum of Solace as well. I'm trying to think what it was now. Mathis? Yes, Mathis, yeah. Okay. Right. Um, can I address those now? Because yes. it's, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right to mention it, but they are all for a very specific reason. First one, first guy that uh, Bond has ever killed, ever. And when, when the uh, guy who says, made you feel it, did he? He did. And they, they absolutely had to show the, the, the fact that that, yeah. that was not an easy death for Bond to actually... Yes. And, that, and that changed who that he was. That was very significant. Yeah, how did and he die? When not, you take a life, do you know what you give? Right, yeah. that's very significant, so they had to put that in. Second time, uh, that was the, the stairwell fight. Now, Sharon mentioned this when we were watching it. I was, I was trying to work out why that one's so much more significant, because he's killed several people in between times. He, he kills the guy who says, did you feel it, did he? And then he kills uh, Sebastian Foucault, the, uh, the, the runner. Probably, yeah. um, and, uh, and the bloke, the, the floppy head, Dimitrios. Dimitrios, the, uh, yeah, and, and, and doesn't seem to have a real problem with any of them. And then suddenly he's, he, he bursts into the bathroom and he, he pulls off his bloodied shirt and stares at himself in the mirror because this death really, really, really took something out of him. And Sharon believed it was because of the fact that because he's starting to really care about Vespa, he was actually just desperately, desperately worried about her because he's not had to worry about anyone else before. And at that point, he was thinking to himself, look, I can take care of myself. I don't know whether I can take care of someone else. And so he's looking for his soul in the mirror and he's staring into those incredibly intense blue round eyes that Daniel Craig has. And it's very similar to that scene in Layer Cake, where he's just had to kill someone that he knows. And it's it's a very key scene. So at that, at that stage, maybe it didn't have to dwell on the actual death so much. Yeah, that's, so much, that's the it issue. It had to it's lead not, up to the fact that it, it was significant. It's not so the maybe fight it itself. It's the fact that yeah. you're made to watch him, you know, the death throes of this guy for like, it's yeah. a good 20 or 30 seconds. It just seems yeah. to me a bit over the top. It's, it was, again, a very hard death, but ultimately that kind of, it keys in with the fact that it's hugely emotional for him, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. Now, at yeah. Quantum of Solace, it's the flip side of that, because his mechanism snapped, and he's just sort of looking left and right like a bird, like just sort of analysing the situation. He's not even noticing that this guy's dying. He knows that it's happening, but he's just like, yep, okay, he's dead, okay. And you're basically seeing the difference in Bond now. That is very significant as well. And then when Mathis dies, someone he actually cares about... He, he's with him, and there's something of the humanity there, but he, Mathis not can't pull it out of him. And then he chucks him in a dumpster. dumpster. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's showing how far down the rabbit hole Bond has now gone, and how deep and, and, and how lost he is. Maybe he didn't have to stay with the, the strangling on the stairwell, but the intensity of those moments is important. I've got a three three main flaws. To like, similar to um, to Zan's death throes, and you know, a little bit too much emphasis on that. For me, they kind of they exaggerate the, the the damage that Bond takes a little too much. Like the uh, the the chase through the airport. Like by the end, he's completely bloody. His nose is bleeding. His eyes bruised, etc. And I don't. And I look at the injuries, and I think I don't remember when he got those. They just seem to be bloodying him up for the the uh, from the simplest of fights. Mm. You know, the, and maybe that's just because I'm too used to Bond getting all the way to the finale without a scratch. But it just it, it just seems really odd that like the 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 shortest of fights and he will come out looking like he's been 
you're beaten up by an, an, an army of guys. There are some subliminal messages in, in the actual way that he's portrayed. Specifically, during that uh, airport fight, he runs after the truck like the T-1000. And then when he gets sliced to pieces and then carries on walking as if he doesn't care, yeah. he's the Terminator at that point. And you're yes. supposed to think, Christ, this is the guy you do not want coming after you. Because it doesn't matter if you wound him, he'll just keep coming. Yeah. So that, that's what they were trying to portray with that one. But yeah, he does get messed up. The, the other thing, one of the other things I point out is, um, and this isn't necessarily a flaw, this is just kind of the, the way, this is what audiences expect from their films nowadays. We discussed earlier the whole, there's an action scene every ten minutes, or mm. something sexy every ten minutes to keep the audience attention. The Casino Royale storyline does not lend itself to that. Like, the, um, the book, the only action sequences are the car chase and the torture. And the bomb. And the bomb? I forgot the bomb. When was the bomb? There's a bomb at the beginning. It explodes, nearly killing Bond. Okay, there's a bomb at the beginning. Okay, apart from that. like, but, but there's, but And there's the gun stick. But the majority Which of the... they switched for the Fox Club instead. The majority of the book, the majority of the book is about the interaction between him and Vesper, him and Lighter, him and the villain, and the poker games. And, okay, fine, you know, they threw in an awesome free-style, um, free-running chase... And you know, I I still quite enjoy you know the the, the action packed um the the airport scene, but it's when you get to Montenegro and the and the focus on the game, the sudden interruption of that game with a sword fight on the stairs, and even, <laughs> there is a machete present, but it's not a sword. Sorry, okay, sorry. The, the the fight on the stairs, and then suddenly the 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 poison thing. I'm not saying that they they're not needed. I'm not. It just feels like the the film and the story could have done without them. That they to me they feel a little tacked on. Right. The poison was instead of the gun stick in the back of his chair. Yeah. They had to put something in there to show that Lashif was actually trying to get rid of him. Yes. And okay. The poison's point. actually extremely effective to actually show Bond really down and really wounded and really almost up, literally about to die in a way that they'd never done before. Yeah. Bond is about to die at that point. Where it, I mean, at the point where, where he presses the red button and it doesn't work, and you're like, oh, Christ, oh, Christ, oh, Christ. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I can hear you v- you're vigorously defending this film. I'm not, I'm not slightly, because like, as I say, I love this film. Um, but, yeah, I, well, you know, the, the, the um, what's it, the, the uh, defibrillator in a glove box is possibly the only camp stupid Bond thing from the, that you'd expect to see in a classic. You don't keep bond. a defibrillator in your own glove box. Pa- no, I don't. I keep. I, I don't even keep my log. My my car documents in my glove <laughs> box. And um, the last thing I'd say that bothers me mm. is the whole point of the Vespa character in the book is that she is a KGB agent working against Bond, and from the beginning, she's playing Bond for a fool and intends to betray him and is using him from the word go to get the the money. Mm-hmm. In this one, she's portrayed as a damsel in distress who fell in love, who genuinely fell in love with James Bond and had a boyfriend that was kidnapped and that was the only reason she was helping the villains, etc. For me, that's disappointing because the whole point, the, the whole point of Casino Royale is to set up the character. I think we discussed this on the um, on the uh, on the Master Secret Service bit. The whole point of Casino yeah. Royale is to set up Bond as a cold-blooded killer who doesn't trust anyone because he has been betrayed on the most you know, basic level. 
Mm. Like, he's been absolutely deeply betrayed. Mm. And the point of her is that she is meant to betray him in the worst possible way, not mm. be an unfortunate situation that got out of hand, but all in all, she was a nice person. And that, and that, and that it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the film for me, but whenever I get to the, whenever I get to the bit where M saying, oh, you know, do you want to know why you survived that night? It's because she arranged with them to spare your life. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, you know, and all that bit, it's like, no, no, that's not what happened. Interesting. Well, that's what happened in this version. Yes, I know, yeah. but I don't <clears throat> like that. I, that's I think the, the, problems, the, the problems with Vesper don't come into this until she's dead. Um, mm. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, her, the, the kind of conspiracy and his feeling of betrayal is heavily played on in Quantum of Solace. Mm. And when you watch the two films back to back, it just doesn't quite stack up. It doesn't feel, unless he's been stewing on it for the past year, it just doesn't feel right. No, he can't, because it literally ca- it carries on yeah. seconds after the... Uh, with, yeah, well, with Mr. White. ...and the Casino yeah, Whale. Indeed. Thing. But it did... It, 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 yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my major issues with Quantum of Solace, which we'll talk about later. That's when I feel that the Vesper character doesn't work. I think she works extremely well in this, because you never... You know, she's she's with him, she's not, she's deceived him, she's not. It's... it's They, they, pl- they play with the audience, which I quite like. See, I, I like the way Vesper's portrayed in this one, because the book, she is not sympathetic really much at all. Uh, at the end, she just—it's like, wh- why'd you do that? Yeah. Uh, whereas in the uh, whereas in this film, you, you can almost see why she's where she's tying it up and going right. It makes the most sense at this point if I die. And and it, it was well done. It was well done. It was just it, for me. It just slightly irritated me that they changed the whole point of that character. I they had to make her more of a sort of a tragic heroine as opposed to yeah. just a, a weird yeah. manipulative bitch. Which is why it's so interesting when, when Bond goes, the bitch is dead, and he's he's just he's closed himself off at that point. Hmm. Yeah, they kind of already done that with um, the world is not enough. Yeah, there's there's uh, echoes of that in there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But again, different Bond. You have got to start from scratch. Vesper's death's really upsetting. Yeah. When when she actually just chooses to die, you can see that when she's actually let out that breath, she's panicking and thinking, "Oh Christ! Oh Christ! I can't go back on this." And she and reaches she, out for him, yeah. Like, like and, thinking, shit. Then you know, can I go back? If you watch the uh, the behind the scenes stuff, there's Eva Green being directed by someone underwater in how to drown convincingly, <laughs> and it's a really upsetting moment. And then when Bond pulls her up and and starts doing CPR, and I I didn't know the story at this point. I was like, it would be really interesting if she didn't just cough and splutter and everything's fine. Mm. And it she didn't, and it was, and Craig bless his heart, is so fucking intense and so fucking real. That bit when he's, he's finished... It's like his soul is bleeding away. When he's finished trying to um, uh, uh, resuscitate her, and he sits up and he's glaring with those amazing eyes. He's glaring at everything, looking for something to blame and kill. And it's at that point that he snaps. He's like a mad dog yeah. in Quantum of Solace. He needs to be put down. And that's when M puts out the uh, order on him, and she says, you, you, you killed one of our agents. And Bond doesn't even correct her. He doesn't say, well, t- I threw him off a roof, but it was under a car, and he seemed to be okay, so I think someone else must have killed him. Plus, he, he, he was working for a terrorist organization. It doesn't bother him. He doesn't go, I've been framed at this point. He goes, hmm, well, no time for that. I'm going to go and kill someone who's yeah. been trying to kill you. And it's, he just doesn't care. Okay, so should we do Quantum of Solace? Why not? Yeah.
on quite neatly. So I watched I watched that last night. Now I've only I think I've only watched that film three times. I saw yeah. it in the cinema. I think I saw it as soon as I got it on Blu-ray, and I had to see it again. And I watched it last night because I knew we were going to talk about it. I thought, right, I need to watch it again just to remind myself. My overriding memory of it when I saw it in the cinema was that I had no idea whatsoever what was going on. Yeah. Now I'm normally very good at following films. You know, I can sit and watch a film, and my wife will often turn to me and say, "What's going on again?" You know, I can I can stay with it, but it just I just could not work out what the hell was going on. And then I watched it again when I got on Blu-ray, and again didn't really know what's going on. I watched it last night, and it it made total sense. So yeah. that, number one, the weakness with that film is you need to have seen Casino Royale about three times, and then watch Quantum of Solace immediately afterwards for you to be at least be able to keep up with it. And you have and to have seen Quantum of Solace at least once yeah. to get it the second time. Exactly, like, exactly like Living Daylights, where you don't understand the plot until you and, and you don't understand the beginning until you know what's coming at the end. I, yeah, I was okay with that one, but Quantum of Solace is is a mess narratively I mean mm. it is just if you didn't know what happened in Casino Royale and if you can't keep up with it you are just lost and part there of the st- reason there are still segments I don't get like what's it like the, the bits in um, Haiti where mm. Bond kills the geologist that yes. has put uh, has spent money that was traced so it's not a geologist it's a hitman the geologist is already dead Okay, the geologist, the geologist is, is floating under the is is in right. the dock. Okay, that's, so the that's geologist green is the one that shows to Camille. Right, the geologist is the one in the water. The hitman yeah. is the one that's going to be killing Camille. Yeah. Camille, I'm confused already. I yeah. saw it yesterday. It's a triple. <laughs> it's a triple whammy. Yeah, I think the main reason for it is that the film starts with three back-to-back, mass, really intense action sequences, clearly trying to keep up with the Bourne films. And they thought, how are we going to do that? I know, let's do three in a row. There are three chase sequences and fight sequences, back-to-back, without mm. pause for any breath. And you May get to I? the end of it, and you think, what the hell is just going on? not until 2008's Quantum of Solace that we get to see just how accomplished Casino Royale actually was. Many of the elements that people passed off as just having novelty value are still there. Craig's performance is stony and intense once again, and it has aspirations on the Bourne trilogy. However, here is where they overshot the mark. In their haste to keep the flow pacey, they looked to their critics. There were people who said that Casino Royale was too talky and character-based with not enough action. Thus, they deliver more than twice the action sequences, 12, over two-thirds the running time. It's like an hour and 40 rather than two hours 20. Taking a good deal longer over each one and a good deal less time on brooding characterization. The result is a music video paced mess delivering two shots a second for most of the runtime. Now that may not sound like much, but the cumulative effect of changing perspective with every single movement is disorientating and allows the viewer no time to drink in the moments themselves. It's much, much too fast, delivered with machine gun over-efficiency. This is the bond we wanted to see after On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mad as hell and out for revenge, not caring who gets killed along the way. But the fleeting moments that this prospect has actually addressed barely punctuate the car crashes and fist fights. Ultimately, the best moment comes at the end. Cradling Camille in the Inferno, the woman has shown herself to be just as stern, driven and competent as Bond. But here, because of the fire, the attack from the man she has feared and hated all her life, and the trauma of actually killing him, she is reduced to a terrified six-year-old. It's an incredibly well-delivered performance from Olga Kurilenko, and as Bond readies himself to kill her with a bullet in the heart to prevent her from suffering as they are burned alive, the rage inside of him is tethered. And while you know he can still kill, he no longer seeks it. 
then he sees the solution and gets them out alive. And that ten-second moment is what Quantum of Solace is all about. And you explaining it like that already makes me feel like the film even more. Like, yeah, I, the whole, you know, stringing together loads of action sequences, having watched it, it's like, right, that felt more like a bit more of a, a, a classic Bond film. When I came out of the cinema, it's like, that felt more like a classic Bond film in that it's action, 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 and I, you know, and it's just a thrill ride. And and yet I st- there's still something that doesn't sit with me, and I think it was the lack of a plot and the lack of a point. And mm. like I say, that that whole yeah that that section there, the way you describe it, yeah, that's that's brilliant. And then when you see that the change in him in action when he goes back to the uh, what's it the, the double agent's apartment in Russia, Vesper's boyfriend. Yeah, Vesper's yeah. boyfriend, and he leaves him alive. Mm. And you know, and, and he also leaves Dominic Green alive. It's basically he stops. Yes considering that killing everyone who's in any yeah. way connected to Quantum is the best thing to do. And that just makes me long for Bond 23. I cannot mm. wait for the next film. That now, Like I said, now that they've fully formed this character, now let's see what you can do with him. Mm. And, they, and, and they, they, they kind of, they kind of um, bookend it by, like, at the very end of the film, like, this is, that's it. We've done, we've made the character, we've done the kind of, the background information, like, you know, for kind of role players, this is, this is, Quantum of Solace and, and Casino Royale are almost the, are almost Bond's character sheet, mm. as it were, before he goes on to the next few films, and at the end of the book on that way, by introducing, finally introducing the gun barrel, mm. to say this is where it actually starts. Somebody said that uh, it, it, Quantum of Solace it works best if you count it as the epilogue to Casino Royale. Yeah. Yeah, that makes I sense. It, if they, it feels to me like the second part of a miniseries. Mm. Um, I think if, again, watching it yesterday, if if you discount the first 30 minutes, if you kind of watch the first 30 minutes, turn it off and leave it and come back once you've had the time to digest what you've just seen. Mm. The same, the last two thirds of that film are really good. And I, I, I like all of the, the whole middle section where, um, you know, where he's actually investigating and he's, and I love the scene yeah. in uh, Vienna in the opera. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> to go back to Diana Day briefly, the reason that the first half of that film was brilliant because it's because Bond doesn't do investigating anymore and certainly didn't in the last, certainly in the Brosnan era, he was like, you know, most certainly with um, Tom Runner Dice and wasn't enough. He is told who the villain is within the first 20 minutes, half an hour of the film. And that's what that. I said at the end of a big long list of things and some spying. Yeah, and some spying. And yeah, yeah, you, you know, Gary's absolutely right. Like seeing him um, investigating, like the Vienna section is brilliant. Right when he, when he, when he's watching and you get this sense of who Quantum is, like the the organization, and he's just chipping in, like it, you know, it gives it a sense of scale as well. Mm. Because but before that, all you knew it was it was Mr. White and a couple of yeah. sort of hangers on that it's, he's bumped off. It's almost building up to, like, as much as Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace have been about building the character of Bond and giving you an introduction to Bond right up to that, like I said, right up to that ending gun barrel. As you're right, this is, you know, the two films are the prologue. This is everything you need to know. Here we go. These are the, these are the adventures of James Bond. Mm. It's almost about, this is the villain we've built for him. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's going, look, Blofeld is here somewhere. Yeah, I, I see, I, it, it must be, Blofeld. it must be. Like, was, I, I said this, as soon as Christina Royale came out, it must be that the organisation is the modern equivalent of Spectre. Well, of course. Because we've or been... Because it, yeah. it'll smirch, smirch. Yeah. Like, we could Because Spectre, Spectre would translate so well to an international crime syndicate slash terrorist cell or terrorist organisation. Like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's what it was. I mean, what's it, the T is for terror? You mentioned that. Have you played Bloodstone recently? 
Yes, I know, you know, I know what you're referring to, the end. Discussion for the end. Discussion, yeah. yeah like, and, and just, it's building up to it, it's like, come on, we've not had Spectre since Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. And Spectre is, like, I know that the Spectre, Spectre was brought in very late in the series of the novels, but Spectre is where we began. From that, way back in 1962, with Dr. No, it was like, you know, Dr. No, I, I worked for Spectre, the special executive for terror, revenge, and extortion. Like, since the, those words were uttered, that's who the Bond, the, the main Bond villain has been. And we lost that in the Cold War and terrorists and drug yeah. dealers and so forth. And it would be so good to go back to that. To Tell po- us how that works these days without hollowed out volcanoes. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Probably merchant bankers. We've, we've been very yeah. easy on Quantum of Solace. A lot of people think it's rubbish. I, it's flawed. It's highly, highly flawed. It's, yeah, it's, it's flawed, yeah. Stringing yeah. together too much action, not being understandable unless you've watched it it's, once already. It's, I'll tell you what it is, badly edited. That's, mm. that's yeah, a, yeah, a real I mean, serious flaw. And as you I said this to said, Sharon. Uh, the, um, if you just had every scene happening in exactly the same pace only you cut all the shots down to half the amount that they've got, or even a quarter. Uh-huh. And so you've got J- Judy Dench walking across the floor in that London flat, talking to Bond, who's behind her. Just have one mid-shot. Yeah. Don't cut to the cigarette. Don't cut to Bond, then cut to Judy Dench, then cut to this, then cut to that. Cut to that. They're just having a conversation, for fuck's sake. The, the trouble you is... You don't need to keep doing that. We will pay attention. The trouble is they're trying to... Do, this is what I don't like. This is one thing I'm not 100% comfortable with the new Bond films. They're trying to do different direction, different editing that, tr- mi- that mimics, like, kind of... Not mimics, but, like, is kind by other films. So the whole... The... the I think it was described as an Art Deco moment where all the, the sound goes during in, in the at the end of Vienna and it's almost slow mo and it's very kind of blurry and there's no that's not Bond has never been about you know artistic presentation or I mean it's, it's like the god awful slow mo bits in um, Die Another Day like when the diamond face Zhao swishes his cape. And it slows down like... Yeah, I, I wish he'd been called Diamond Face. Diamond yeah. Face. Yeah, Diamond <laughs> Face sounds more like a Bond villain than, De- yeah. than Zhao does. Zhao. But like, they, they're doing these things which, you know, don't get me wrong, they look good, and I can see why they're trying to do it. They're trying to elevate Bond beyond a basic pop- popcorn flick. But for me, it just it doesn't need to be that complicated. If you look back at all of the pre- the, the first 20 Bond films, with the exception of Diamond Face and that you know, Diamond Face cokes, you know, cloak swish... All of them are what shot very simply. Very you know, never, never too complicated in terms of how they're shot, how they're presented, how they're directed. And I prefer that. I'm not going to say don't do anything artistic. No, I actually think absolutely some, not. That's some artistic, like the scene, yeah, but it's yeah. got to have some. It's got some pause. There was like mm. the bit where he goes in to, to see Felix, and we're like, oh, he can finally talk to Felix. And they're like. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds before we get attacked. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, have a conversation before yeah. you get attacked. Please, just come on. Yeah, cause it I doesn't need like to be that. an hour and 40 minutes. They, we could have stood two hours, folks. I am loving, I am loving the new Felix Leiter. I love the fact that he's, they brought mm. him back and they actually seem to be planning to use him. Mm. And yeah, he's so. so well done. He's, like, he's certainly in um, the, this, the, the, the first one, your brother from Langley. I, I love the whole, I was like, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll fund you. Uh, just one thing: when you, you, you give us, you give, give us the sheaf and the money. Does it look like we need the money? It's like it, it's brilliant. He's he's fantastic, kind of representing the yeah. new America, the CIA. But he's woefully underused in quantum. Yeah, woefully they could have done a lot more in there. 
he's just he's just in the plane with Dominic Green. You're like, what? And Sharon actually said, is that Felix? Yeah. Yep. And he's there with that guy with the wig, and then there's that other guy who's like... Corrupt and slightly camp um, boss. Yeah. Mm. yeah, you're right. We should only deal with nice people. Quantum of Solace is about how he finds some humanity again. That's one thing they need to not do in Bond 23 or the next few films is yeah no whole, he has to be the, like no the yeah. whole the whole Bond going against MI6 or yeah. being fired so Die Another Day was great Casino Royale he went against MI6 um, like you know towards the start a when bit. he you know, no, a bit but like also like towards the start there were the whole things you know I knew it was too early to promote you like anything where M's basically saying I wish you weren't a double O. Or you're fired, or blah blah blah. They need to stop doing that because they've done that well. Now stop it. Well, as I understand, double O agents have a limited life expectancy. So your mistake is short-lived. His delivery, fucking brilliant. Anyway, I, I know I keep wanking over Daniel Craig, but I think it's <laughs> well deserved. Okay, uh, anything more on Craig before we go to the video games? I'll just say I think the it's hard to tell now, but the omens are probably quite good for Bond Twenty Three because historically, where there's been a gap. The film that's then come out has been much, much better for it. Yeah, so they've had more time to think about it. They've had more time to rework the script. They've had more time. What do we want? What do we need? What What was the last one? Their worst films are when they do, when they start churning them out back to back. Yeah, Yeah. and they get to like the third or fourth in a row and they run out of ideas. I want Bond 23 to be a modern Thunderball slash You Only Live Twice slash The Spy You Love Me. I was thinking a lot of aquatic stuff would be good. We haven't seen Bond underwater for quite some time. But I'm I'm, I'm just thinking something where the entire world is at stake, where there's a massive villain, um, like like I say, Blofeld, come on, bring back Blofeld, and the the great balance between action and story. That's what we need for Bond. They need to put a dirty bomb in the president's internet. (laughs) Roger Deakins, who's the cinematographer for the Coen Brothers, he's going to be the oh, cinematographer on it, which is very good, and it's directed by Sam Mendes as well. So, you know, it has it has the elements there to be to be a winner, but you know, you never know. If you're going to ape what people like, look at The Dark Knight. Yeah, and here's well, and here's hoping that they don't do what like because you know it'll be out tomorrow, and it'll be out next year, 2002, which will be the. 50th anniversary 50th. of Doctor Let's not do a Die Another Day. Let's no. ignore the fact no, that it's right, no references. Although the, the bit with Strawberry Fields and the oil, actually yeah. quite classy. Yeah, that worked. That worked. And uh, again, it's just the reference to the fact that, look, Bond, you are now leaving female corpses in your wake, for Christ's sake. Uh, and one more thing. Actually, I'm going to ask you folks at home a favour. I know a load of you people do not like this song, but I, I watched it. Oh. Shut up. I watched it on the uh, film, and they cut it and cut it and cut it again, so that it's way too rushed. If you listen to the full version... No! Yes. No! You can't fight it, James. The full version is what the I heard first. The version is actually really quite measured. It and really moved. isn't. It's really quite good. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to derail this. There are two things I hate about that song. Uh-huh. Because it, I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you, for the first... 45 seconds or so, it's a great song. The... Like that, absolutely brilliant. Almost mirrors, it, it, it echoes the uh, the opening notes to You Know My Name, which is one of my favourite songs. Yep. Um, the... 
the kind of the slow, very nice, very kind of Arnold-esque. The, the basic rhythm of the verses, quite like, also very, and you hear the basic rhythm of the verses, works its way into the score quite a lot in Quantum Solace, and every time he does, it's brilliant. This guy knows his music. The point where it goes wrong is the chorus where you can hear Jack White screeching, which Alicia Keys is already doing. Mm-hmm. The point where they basically derail and start going, oh, 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 and they start going, oh, a lot, which annoys me. But the worst fucking bit uh-huh. is when Alicia Keys starts singing along with an electric guitar, or the electric guitar mimics what she's singing. Like, what's it like? He's playing the... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> done. <laughs> You know, Badoo, Badoo. It's like, no, not fucking Badoo. Don't Badoo. This just, ah, I hate the song with a passion. I really want to mention how I really like this song, folks. Uh, There's this bit where she goes, and that's, played in a slightly different way. Yeah, I know, don't don't get me wrong. The the, the basic notes, the DNA of the tune is okay. It's, It's just the performance that I hate. It is by no means the worst Bond song, but clearly it's quite uh, the worst. It's right up there. It's right up there with the worst Bond songs. One of my favourite Bond songs. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the whole thing now oh. and you folks decide. If you really don't want to listen to it, skip forwards by about two minutes. Skip forward by about two minutes. Just do it. Save yourself the hassle. Don't skip forwards. Listen to it, folks. Give it some time.
That's good. I like the uh, the fact that it's, we're so passionately, diametrically opposed. So Bond in video games, Goldeneye, great game, is a landmark game. It came at a time when FPS games for console were just plain awful. I actually remember showing it to a PC-loving friend of mine whose machine was really the only domain of that genre at the time. He didn't rate the graphics or the speed, but enjoyed the core gameplay and multiplayer. Let's remind ourselves of the broken ground here. It was number one, an excellent movie tie-in. Number two, at the time, rather good likenesses of the main cast. Number three, objective-based structure. Number four, modular selectable levels. Let's go back to objective-based structure there. Before, it was just get into this level, shoot everyone, get out. This, it was like, you know, you got to go here, you got to hack into that, you got to press that, you got to get not be spotted by cameras. If you do get spotted by cameras, you can shoot them, stuff like that. And uh, you, there, there was things to do in these games, mm. which was totally new at the time. Modular, selectable levels. I cannot overemphasize how important it was to be able to see all of the levels in little thumbnails and go, right, I want to go into that one. And you go in and out of facility all day long. And post-level statistics so you could go right I want to see if I can get 100% accuracy on this can I get 200% accuracy if I just shoot two guys with a magnum once and then run through the rest of the level can I get 200% I can and stuff like you know how many headshots did I get again brand new at the time sniper rifles they weren't in games until this Seriously? weapons no this was the first sniper rifle I think there was one in Quake it may actually have predated it but it might even just have been a mod to begin with. Um, it would have been like a Quake 3 or something. Silenced weapons, four-player split-screen, multiple multiplayer modes. I think there may have been multiple multiplayer modes in uh, Quake again, but uh, I get that not my scene, Zan. Uh, no, I don't remember. Do you remember Slappers Only, though? Oh, in yes. GoldenEye? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, I used to, with uh, my friends at uh, work, we used to have uh, weekly GoldenEye tournaments around each other's houses. Thanks. We even went to the trouble of making the, the classic cardboard cross, you know, oh. so that you could divide up the screen and not see each nice. other's screens. That is awesome. Uh, you know, we did that for about two years. It's like every we, week. 
we used to like we even used to start making up our own game mode. So we used to um, me uh, me my sister and my two cousins used to play on a um, facility. Two of us like, you know, on two teams of two, we'd set a, a match which had no time limit, no score limit, and we'd basically pick a room that was our base and try mm-hmm. to capture the other. Um, so person. king of the hill without the mechanics for it. Yeah, essentially, and we'd hold each other hostages and we'd try to rescue each other. Or nice. my particular favourite was um, uh, I got caught was held in the toilets. Fortunately, managed to, you know, still had um, a, a proximity mine on me, nice. a remote mine on me. Just shouted to my cousin, who was sitting next to me, for England, John! And then <laughs> enemies with different behaviours and shootable body parts. Before, I don't know how the enemies were composed in Quake, but I know in Doom they were basically just cardboard cutouts yeah, and shot them right. enough times <clears> and they'd, they'd die. With, with the guys in Goldeneye were created from various different polygons and different bits, and if you shot them in the knee, they reacted as though you'd shot them yeah, in the knee. They and the balls, they're yeah. double over. Their little faces mutely screaming at you. You shoot them in the head, and then they topple sideways and go like that. You shoot them in the head when they got a, a helmet on, bullet hole on the helmet, but they're still alive. It, oh, just, just messing around with enemies was brilliant. 32 weapons, which was unheard of in those days. All of them selectable in one go sometimes. Destructible environments. Again, I don't know if this actually turned up in the PC shooters, but basically you could destroy pretty much everything. You could even destroy things that you really needed to complete the level, like uh, door switches. And computers and stuff. Yeah. Any other ground broken, because basically this game was something else. Oh, I can't remember. There, there was a mission where I, which I failed every single time because I kept on blowing something up that I wasn't meant to. I, but I need to play this game again from scratch and do a whole gonzo about it. I think that's going to happen, but I'm, I don't know how. I want to play the HD remake, but they're not going to release it. And uh, I, I've actually still got my N64. Obviously the Wii version. I, I've, still, I've still got my N64. You can... You can get an N64. And you can get an N64 and copy of Goldeneye for about 20 quid. It's yeah, not know. expensive. I just didn't want to have to do that. It's so... I've, you know, it's I love my 64... Yeah, we well, go, go. Yeah, you can get them anywhere. So, I, I, eBay, easy. Yeah. Back then, PC shooters were mostly based on Doom and Quake, straightforward carnage. Goldeneye was more tricksy and asked more of the player. We keep waiting for a Goldeneye beta to emerge and make us feel like this again. But even the best Bond action game these days is up against a hundred others, not constrained by that license. This broke so much new ground that it has to be titles like Half Life and Halo that also changed the face of how we play games to be its equal. And then there was a load of crap games between then and not too far before now. Tomorrow Never Dies. Just disappointing. I mean, we don't even have to talk about them. It wasn't Goldeneye. It was on the PlayStation. It wasn't Goldeneye. Well, it's not enough. The PlayStation version disappointing the N64 version better, but still wasn't not quite Goldeneye. Goldeneye. 007 Racing. I did, I did, I did like um, was not enough for the fact that in the in the multiplayer, you, when you see someone else, they are actually holding their weapons with two hands and you know, crouching, standing like like pointing yeah, it up and crouching arm. rather than sliding along on one knee. <laughs> it's always uh, great when you see someone trying to be sneaky. You just see them just kind of slide along like some freakish Egyptian. Anyone play 007 Racing? No, no. Agent Under Fire. A little yes. bit. Yeah, I played it. Yeah, it's not. It's not much good. No, the not the one good. next one, Nightfire. That yep. that I. That's probably the best one. Well, excluding Bloodstone, since uh, I, since I quite, I quite enjoyed that one. That was oh, yeah. good. Nightfire's good. Worth going back to. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it it, it was aged fairly well. It's okay. um. I might give it a go. Only thing got, on this, 
only thing that bothered me about it is that it's one of the Bond games that really leads you by the hand. But like, and the, the, the effort all seems to go like that first level where you have to sneak into a castle, then sneak through the castle courtyard into a party, then you're going around a party surrounded by beautiful women, then you have to get to the damsel in distress. Down from distress, and then you have to escape. And this amazing opening level, and then all the other ones felt really short compared that's, to that. That's quite a good multiplayer as well. It didn't, yeah. uh, uh, didn't ape Goldeneye too much, and it was, uh, had some interesting game modes, and it, I, I think it supported eight players, which was unusual at the time. Everything or nothing, which. I like. No. no. I've not, I've not played it. No, I didn't I've heard it. a lot of people say they really quite enjoyed this one. I, I like it. One. I, you know, they did one a different direction. They made it third person. It was really, like, so, my only complaint with Nightfire was that it was so short. You only had 12 levels. Only the, the first one was like a decent length. You know, it took about half an hour, 40 minutes to complete. Everything or nothing was third person. There was lots of, Car chases and gunfights and motorbike chases and kind of a precursor to Bloodstone then. Yeah, and and it was yeah it was very much a precursor to Bloodstone, and it really felt like a Bond film because of the way that there were so many different action sequences pen you know together and the way you different you know the way the plot progressed and the way that you know the the you went to different locales. The actual plot was a bit stupid. It was all a little bit. Um, it was basically about uh, Willem Dafoe stealing nanobots which would eat metal. It was a little bit too sci-fi, um, but the cast was brilliant. Like to have to have you know John Cleese and Judy Dench and Pierce Brosnan and Willem Dafoe and Shannon Elizabeth and this was the last hurrah for Pierce Brosnan, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I tell last... you what, it, it, it's almost That's... a shame. Like if if they'd if they'd made this into a film mm. without the nanobots bit, if, mm. or if they, at least they'd amended the man because it's about this um, this guy who's trying to get his revenge on Russia for mm. letting them all down the Cold War. And, Russia. You know, and it was, it, like the, with the, like I said, with the exception of the nanobots, the whole way the plot progressed was mm. brilliant. If they'd made this Bond, uh, Brosnan's last film, and in fact this is essentially Bo- Brosnan's last Bond adventure, mm. it's a good one for him to go out on. Also got a really great song by Meyer in it. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Goldeneye Rogue Agent, which everyone was like, yeah, you know, we can see through your shitty plan. You can call this Goldeneye, but it's not fucking Goldeneye. I always wanted to try this, though, because the idea that you're playing for all the Bond villains and the Bond mm. villains have teamed up, I like the idea there was of that. A, uh, the Scaramanga voice of uh, Christopher Lee is awesome. It's like, I heard it was, it, I'm giving you your orders isn't now. Isn't it actually Christopher Lee? I believe so. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't mind tracking this down. And Just to see Christopher Lee doing Scaramanga again. Well, yeah, that's it, yeah. A splendid effort, Francisco. My compliments. 
Thank you, number one. Of course, your plan is perfectly conceived. The rivals devoured one another, as you predicted. Yes, but in removing Arik and Julius, we may have created a third threat to the organization. So what of this golden eye? I will keep an eye of my own on that one. Now, it's, it's an interesting one because basically, like you're going, you're, it's it's sort of an Elseworlds Bond story where all of these guys are still alive and all like, working together, like the Legion of Doom. It sounds like it would be reminiscent of, um, and I've started reading a number of Batman comics, and there's a number of Batman comics around the ones where Bruce Wayne died a couple of years ago. Spoilers, <laughs> sorry. Um, there were a number. There was a brilliant comic called a, a graphic novel called Gotham Underground, which is about the Batman villains fighting over who's going to take over Gotham's underworld. Nice. And that, yeah. and Golden Eye Relegation feels like it could have been that. It, probably interesting plot, not especially fantastic mechanics, though. Nobody no. talked about them. Uh, From Russia With Love was interesting because it was going back to Retrobond, the one that everybody, you know, venerates. Uh, From Russia With Love, the, the original story. Uh, ne- never played it, anyone? Played I've it? not, no. I, I, no. Kinda, it, apparently it's basically a carbon copy of, um, of Everything or Nothing, oh. with a few things letting it down, such as, um, like, the, a jetpack fight sequence which just feels really stupid apparently natasha beddingfield as a bond girl i'm not a fan of anybody but some of these bond girls in some of these games are just fucking awful oh, they like, are what's the bloody zoe nightshade who's hmm. in um asian on the fire and no fire yeah i'll just no then we finally got to this generation, and the first Bond game was Quantum of Solace. You know that uh, little soundbite where I was saying, you shoot everyone in, in this room, you go to the next section, you shoot everyone else. This was the game I was talking about. Yeah. That's all it is. It's just the Call of Duty engine, thrown together by Treyarch and about four other production companies, rushed out to coincide with Quantum of it's, Solace. It's not even Quantum of Solace. It's Casino Royale with a little bit of Quantum of Solace. Yep. It's I got a game. quantum of quantum of solace in it. Yeah, I played about two or three levels and turned it off. I, I hated it. See, I went through the first time on normal, and it was just boring. I've been going through in the past week on hard, and it's just horrible. Mm. I don't, I've, I've been ripping into it uh, on, on Twitter, saying I've got bile and hatred for it, because playing on hard really underlines all of the problems with it and how deathly dull the whole process is. After the freedom of Bloodstone, it feels so restrictive to be stuck in there. It's, mm. I don't know, play, play one, then the other, and you'll see the, 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 the differences. Someone, I can't remember who on Twitter has been talking about, well, I don't know, I really like Quantum of Solace, and I didn't play Bloodstone because it got bad reviews. There's like 
3% difference in Metacritic, but Quantum still got slightly higher. But and Quantum is <coughs> by far the worst game. And, and in between these, we've had uh, The Bourne Supremacy, which I think is probably the best yeah. movie. Oh, hang on. The, cons- the Bourne Supremacy. Conspira- conspiracy. Oh, conspiracy. Yeah. conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. I was getting bloody confused. Yeah, yeah. Bourne Conspiracy, which is, you know, I think it's by far the best sort of franchise or movie based oh no it wasn't really based on the movies it was based on the books but books yeah, yeah. but they had some nods nod to the movies which indeed. are a bit kind of yeah you know he, he's dressed in exactly the same way so the same good bat, same red mini they really showed how to do a really good <coughs> spy game uh, hmm. you know action, action adventure game don't remember so much about the actual action or even the driving but the actual fights felt really meaty and the, and the whole you know yeah. I felt like I had to put a lot into the fights which were which it was, it was accurate it was basically like uh uh, Batman, um, the Arkham uh, Asylum. Arkham Asylum. Yeah, it's the same yeah. combat system. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then came GoldenEye 007 on the Wii, which I started playing earlier this year because you you sent me both Bloodstone and this, James. But I, I played Bloodstone first, and I'm, for reasons I'm going to go into on Bloodstone, I can't play Bond games FPS anymore. Not really, and I, I had a real problem with this, and the fact that it's in standard definition, and the fact that it feels very, very, very scripted, and it feels very much like Call of Duty. I might be being way too harsh on it, and I yeah. will give it another go at a later date, but I just did not like well, this. I'll, I'll give, I'd, I'd give Reloaded a go. Reloaded's coming out November 4th. It's on 360, so you don't have to worry about standard definition. It's got standard control, so you don't have to worry about dealing with the Wii controls, and I honestly would give it another go. I I wouldn't agree with it being Call of Duty like either. It's it's very much not Call of Duty like. Some of the later levels you don't even shoot anything. Yeah, um, I don't think they really got to them. Yeah, I, 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 just after the club and then I got. A bit I really of really enjoyed it, and I, on the way I, I played it on the um, uh, the classic controller Pro, which obviously is like a, a regular game controller, so it's so much mm. yeah, it's much much easier. But oh, is it just me with the motion controls? Then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. And I played I played the uh, multiplayer quite a bit, and it and it works really well. It's they've um, cleverly designed the levels to keep them small and keep them tight, so mm. that it does feel like Goldeneye did on the N64. Like my, my, um, like also when you know, obviously, like I, I dealt with um, Activision quite a lot when they were marketing this, and they were going about how they, you know, they're bringing, you know, the the, the key marketing message was that they're bringing back um, the Goldeneye multiplayer, and they want the people to play this like they used to play the N64 one. I actually do. My, um, I, I run a scout trip in my spare time, and the rest of the scout leading team like this version of Goldeneye. So every time we plan a turn, we all you know, we all bundle around one of our flats. We've all got Wii's. And you know, we'll spend half an hour planning the turn and then two hours playing Goldeneye. Yeah. And like and, and, and the Wii version. And things like you know, like the you know, we were talking about slappers only earlier. The man with the golden gun mode. Um, which was great in the first one. This one, we really get into the golden gun. Like whoever's got the golden gun, it's, just, it's such a great. Mode it's the to closest play. any game has come to the original Goldeneye in terms yeah. of its spirit and and the the, the, line, the design philosophy behind it. It's I, I actually think it's really good. It's probably my favourite shooter on the Wii. To talk about the um, the single Same, player briefly. Actually, to, no. sing, to, <laughs> to talk about. Uh, well, not really, because I love Death Space Extraction. So, okay. and same development team as well. Okay. To talk about the single player briefly, I love the way they have reimagined Goldeneye as if it was produced. If, if Goldeneye had been filmed now with Daniel Craig as Bond, I like the way they've done that. I think they've handled it well in terms of the changes and the subtle changes to make, you know, making sure it's not just a it, it, it's not just a '90s film with a, a you know a 2000 a noughties, you know kind of skin. Tell you what, James. When you get sent your review copy, once you're finished reviewing it, send it. <laughs> I will. I will lend you Goldeneye Reloaded. 
Thank you, because I'm a little bit worried about spending full price Absolutely. on it. Absolutely, there's a dem- there's a demo. A demo is going to be released as well, like earlier early in November. I imagine that the demo will be um, the first level, the dam level, which the dam level does um, does feel a little Call of Duty esque towards the start because it is a bit scripted. But towards the end of the game, it's not like that at all. I like Bloodstone and in fact would like to put it forward as the best 007 game currently playable is down to pacing and control. Both Quantum of Solace and the GoldenEye Wii imaging on the Wii put the player in a familiar mode of Call of Duty Soldier and then spend the duration of the game trying to convince you that you are in fact James Bond despite the abundance of endless Call of Duty style shooting gallery moments. Now considering what you guys just said I kind of probably have to finish the Wii version of GoldenEye. Bloodstone puts you in third person and shares more characteristics with Uncharted and Splinter Cell Conviction. It has solid cover mechanics and meaty action. However, because of the risk versus reward aspects afforded by chaining swift melee takedowns with the free headshots you're granted for performing them, you can rush at breakneck speed with the smoothness and precision of Bond, all the while able to watch the man in action. Combine this with the vehicular sections that are always a well-received break from the standard action. Each gleaming car, speedboat or battered truck that you take the wheel of hurtles you into the screen for an extremely enjoyable and extremely scripted ride, only broken up when you make a mistake and realise how little control you're really exerting. They nonetheless convey a tingly feeling of satisfaction when you find yourself weaving in and out of oncoming traffic successfully. It seems churlish to suggest that the in-head view is disengaging, but we're honestly so used to the cinematic experience that it feels more like watching a Bond film that you're controlling than being Bond himself. Perhaps in the future there will be a truly immersive first-person Bond that genuinely conveys the many skills required of a secret agent besides shooting men with small beards in polo shirts or alternatively kicking the fuck out of them. Okay, uh, top three Bond films each, bottom one Bond film each. Bottom one... Go on, uh, I'll go first then. So, uh, where's my list gone? Just bear with me. Um, right, so my top three, and I, I did struggle with this a little bit, but in, I suppose in order, uh, Thunderball Top, um, simply because I think it's the archetypal James Bond film, and uh, much as you can admire what Daniel Craig has done, I don't think he's made enough Bond films yet to say he's as good as Connery was. Um, and thematically, narratively, directorially, uh, by far it's Connery's best. Then For Your Eyes Only, which I, I do have a, really, a soft spot for, because I think it's a genuine, intriguing spy film with an underlying um, plot, which is driven through sort of these two central characters, which you're not quite sure who's the villain and who isn't, and this sort of hatred between them. And, and the fact that the film doesn't really go anywhere, it kind of meanders along in a, in a good way, and it doesn't involve world domination and nuclear bombs and mass destruction and stealing oil or stealing water or anything like that. It's a very sort of classic 1970s, 1980s Cold War theme, which uh, I think is fantastic. And then finally, 
much as Lazenby is derided, I, I do generally think that On a Manager Secret Service is the best Bond film with the worst James Bond. <laughs> well said. Fair news. Um, for mine, then, I, my... <laughs> My favourite is still Tomorrow Never Dies, just for the, the soft, spot I, soft spot I have in my heart for it, as it was my first cinema bond, the first moment where I really felt connected to the series, and I just, for me, Brosnan is my bond. You know, like, people have their doctor when it comes to Doctor Who, Brosnan is my bond, and, and largely because of Tomorrow Never Dies. I love You Only Live Twice is my favourite of the old-school Bond films, and certainly out of, like, the classic, the world domination ones. I, I just I, I think possibly again because it's one of the first ones I saw all the way through and when I was younger it just really captured my imagination really got me into the series I absolutely loved it the last one would be uh, The Living Daylights just because I don't woefully underrated underused undervalued as we said last week um, and just it's such a great new take on the Bond on, on Bond and he's proof that it's the same bond that's been dealing with, just from the venom of I've been doing this for so damn long, and I just I, I really enjoy the kind of the direction that that film takes the series. And uh, very simple for me, it's Live and Let Die, The Living Daylights, and Goldeneye. Three new bonds with the production team all trying their hardest and the strongest new directions. Right, so my my worst bond film. Now again, I've agonised over this. I'm going to quickly sneak in the other two. I mean, between Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever, and A View to a Kill, you have three absolute stinkers. <laughs> but I'm afraid I cannot escape. Uh, a View to a Kill for me is just awful from beginning to end. And that woman needed to burn to death in that building. I'm sorry, but no, for me, a View to a Kill, awful. It'd be very easy for me to agree with you, and there's a lot of me that does. But um, for me, it's Moonraker. It just took the fancy far too far, even more so than, than Die Another Day for me. Invisible cars and so forth were nothing compared to Bond going to space, walking around in slow motion, Jaws being saved by a buxom blonde from Sweden, and suddenly being able to talk and giving her champagne. Just, I, I just The way that that film started was so good, it fell off the rails. There's nothing redeeming about Moonraker I like at all. I mean, for Christ's sake, the the, uh, the Bond gondola. Need I say any more? The the pigeon that does a double take. I'm trying to think of the uh, the film that made me feel the most wretched recently because I've seen them all. Um, it wasn't Octopussy. In the end, I, when I watched Octopussy, the uh, the aerial stuntery at the very very end was actually really quite fantastic. Mm. Um, I think it's got to be Diamonds Are Forever. That film is wretched. <laughs> And one last thing before we go. The votes are in on the forum for the top three non-Daniel Craig Bonds as voted for by the Gonzo community. In third place is The Living Daylights. Second, Goldfinger, by a narrow margin. But with a score that combines the total number of votes for these two is the clear winner. And while some folks, including Gary, may say it's partly due to goodwill for the classic game, I think that the quality shines through, and most of you guys seem to agree, that Goldeneye is the best of the first incarnation of James Bond. So all I have left to do is say thank you to my co-hosts James Batchelor and Gary Blower. 
No, thanks very much. It's been absolutely fantastic. And these, this is possibly my favourite film series of all time, so I've really enjoyed discussing these. I have to confess, I haven't been able to actually go back and watch all of them, but just talking about them makes me want to. I now want to go back and have a Brosnan marathon. I certainly want to do um, Casino Royale and, and Quantum of Solace all in one go. That's something I've not done yet, so uh, I've got a free weekend up. Maybe I will. Yes, thanks very much, Alexia. It's been... Um it's been fantastic taking this sort of trip down memory lane. I, I, you know, I, like James, I I tend to watch all the Bond films every year, but uh, this has given me an excuse to to watch some of the more recent ones again as well. So uh, interesting to watch, particularly uh, Quantum of Solace and uh, and Casino Royale back to back. But uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. And please go ahead and plug that high quality show of yours. You can find us at www.gameburst.co.uk. We run a twice-weekly, half-an-hour gaming podcast. We have news, roundtables, replay episodes, quiz shows. Quite a varied show, actually. Um, You can find us at www.gameburst.co.uk or on iTunes. And to close us out, simply because of the lengths the game goes to making you feel like you're in the middle of the next Daniel Craig Bond adventure, we have the wonderful theme from Bloodstone, sung by the game's Bond girl, played by Joss Stone. This is I'll Take It All.
Shots are made. 